testing one two one two one two one two and today on the Tim Marner podcast show we have David Reed, the CEO of Burtonshaw, and also I believe author. I've authored a few things. Have you really? Yeah, and I'm also the founder of Breakthrough Success. Which is it's a business consultancy firm. And is that something that you're doing is that a new thing that you're up to? Yeah, I suppose over the last few years I've been so successful with Burton Shaw um, that I wanted to help other business owners um, scale up their business. Oh, so amazing. It, it's about helping them with their mindset, helping them with their strategic plans, helping yeah. them with um, increasing their income and maximizing their profit margins. So let me talk about mindset to start off with and let me talk about the book that you got coming out and what little David Reed was like. Okay. And what's going on? You okay. can go. You, I just want to tell help tell your story, mate. And obviously, I don't know anything about it. So. Okay. Well, the 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 book will be coming out sometime next year. Yeah. Don't, don't make me send a timeline <laughs> because there's no way I could do that at the minute. Yeah. Um. But the book starts with my early life, so I'd, I'd like to share that with you, really. Yeah, definitely. Um. If you can sort of indulge me and come back in time with me, just imagine that you're you're back with me in in Ireland. Um, when I was a child. Um, what was, year are we talking? Uh, no, I don't want to give that year oh, away, okay, but just, just say a long time ago. <laughs> just say a long time ago. So I was about seven or eight at the time. Yeah. Um, this is one of my, my earliest memories. Um, I was living in my grandmother's house, which is a big old uh, typical Irish house. Um, back in the day when there was no central heating and uh, no carpets on the floors and all that kind of stuff. So cold, sort of big old drafty house. So one of my earliest memories is, is around the time I was seven or eight years old. Um, and it was um, nighttime. You know that those kind of times when you sometimes have bad dreams or nightmares and you're not really sure whether you're awake or whether you're asleep? Yeah. Well, I, I thought I was having a really bad nightmare. Um, I felt it was suffocating. I felt as if I couldn't breathe. And I felt this uh, massive pain inside. I couldn't really work out what it was. And then I suddenly came to it, it stopped, but I was I was in agony really, I was, I was terrified, I didn't know what was happening. But actually, it wasn't a nightmare, what had just happened was that um, I'd been raped by the man who was later to become my stepfather. Now, as a seven or an eight year old, I didn't know what had happened to me, I, I couldn't even put it into words, couldn't describe it. But that was really a start of uh, a lot of things kicking off in my life, if if you like. So immediately after that, as, as I kind of started to be able to breathe, <clears throat> probably again, he'd, he'd had me um, pushed down, face down into a pillow. I'd never met this man. Um, my mother had been on a date and thought it was a good idea to let him stay in the house and let him stay in my room. Um, and, and that's what happened to me as a result. So I kind of started to realize that I wasn't dreaming. It wasn't a, a nightmare, but something had happened. So this guy was slapping me around the head um, called me a dirty little bastard and it was my fault and all that kind of stuff so that that kind of is one of my earliest memories and that has shaped my life ever since and that's going to be the uh, first chapter of the book explaining what happened and and what happened after that really um the next I'm speechless david to be honest i'm absolutely speechless mate okay so go on uh, a lot of people are speechless when yeah, I tell yeah. them that because they see me as a, a very successful businessman heading up a, a multi-million pound business and yeah. kind of think life must have been easy. Yeah. But the, the truth was it wasn't. 
Um, my childhood was pretty tough. And that that was the start, really. I, I never met this man, as I said a minute ago. But that was the start of four or five years. <clears throat> of this continually happening to you? Yeah, I was um, physically and sexually abused by him for the next four or five years. I can't, I can't be absolutely clear about you know when it, what, ex, what, what the exact date it was when it started. It's one of those things that's a bit hazy. I, I remember the thing, but not the date. Although I, knew, I know it was around seven or eight. But for the first few years, I did think it was my fault. I thought... Because he made you believe that. He told me it was my fault. And as a child, I believed him. But by the time I was sort of around 10 or 11, I started to realize that this isn't right. Um, this, <clears throat> it shouldn't be happening and stuff like that. Um, still didn't really know why it was happening. I didn't really know what to do about it. But I knew it wasn't right. So with from 10 until around 12, I um, tried to work out what the hell to do about it. And at 12 years old, I decided to go to the nearest police station, ask to speak to the senior police officer. Why did you not um, talk to your mum about it? Didn't feel I could talk to anybody. Um, he brainwashed me. I felt it was my fault. I felt I was, as he had said, a dirty little bastard, and I'd done something to deserve it. So I felt ashamed. Um, I was too frightened to tell anybody. But by how brave you must have been to go to the police station on your own at that age. Yeah, I, th I didn't think of any other option, and I thought the police would probably arrest him. So I, was, I spoke to the senior police officer, and I, I told him what had been going on. Um, and his reaction was not the one I expected. I expected him to arrest me. He was by then my stepfather. Um, I thought he would arrest him or, I don't know, do something about it. Um, what he actually did was put me in the back of a police car drive me back to the house and tell my stepfather what I'd accused him of. Um, my stepfather told him that I was a troublemaker. I was always telling lies. The police officer left the house. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and my stepfather proceeded to beat me up um, to the point where I was admitted to hospital. I was in intensive care for 48 hours. I wasn't expected to live. I spent three months in hospital. Um, so the police let me down. But while I was in hospital, the health services let me down. They asked what had happened, how I got so many injuries. <clears throat> and he told them that I'd had an argument and jumped out of the first floor window. And they believed him. Um, school didn't ask where I was. He told school we'd moved and I'd joined another school. He put me into private school is what he told them. So school failed me. Services failed me. Social services weren't interested. Police failed me. Health service failed me. Um, and as I said, I was lucky to survive. But that was actually the third hospital admission in two years. But the most serious. Um, anyway, after that, after... Three months when they said I could be discharged, um, I was taken back home, but I knew it wasn't safe. I knew I needed to get away. How old were you at that point? Twelve. Twelve. Um, so at that point, I stole a load of money from the house and ran away. Um, I spent, spent the next, <clears throat> probably on and off, five years living rough in Belfast. And don't forget, bearing in mind my age, this is during the time of what people refer to as the Troubles. So, yeah. you know, I call it by what it really was, a civil war. Yeah. I was living on the streets when there was bombs going off, people shooting each other. And I was living in the middle of that on the streets as a teenager. 
Um, I stole stuff to survive. Thinking back, um, I'd call it ethical stealing. I only stole what I needed to live. I stole food and clothes and stuff to, you know, give me some shelter and whatnot. But I never stole anything I didn't need. But I was living rough for most of my teenage years. That's mental, what man. So you can imagine what a fucked up little kid I was. What a fucked up head I had at that time. That kind of led into a load of drug use, um, a lot of alcohol use. To try and numb the pain, numb the well, the loneliness and the pain and the fear. Um, I lived every day in fear that somebody, somebody else would hurt me or, or get killed. The reality was, I thought any any day I could get killed. Um, it was a very scary time. Every now and again, I went back and seen. So I, I was living rough in Belfast, which was about twelve miles away from the town that I grew up. Every now and again, I went back and saw some of my mates. Occasionally, went into school, <clears throat> but nobody really ever asked any questions about where I was or what I was doing. They all thought I was going to this posh private school somewhere else. Nobody, nobody asked any questions. Um, it was kind of like when I was about sixteen, I started to think, I've got to try and, I've got to try and somehow sort this out and started to think about the future. But when I ran away at 12, one of, one of the things that was in my mind really clearly was that I wanted to use my experiences, even as a kid I knew this at 12, I wanted to use my experiences to help other people. So at 12, I made the decision I wanted to be a social worker and help other kids. I wanted to try and help kids get, you know, stop them being abused. I wanted to help kids who had been abused to try and recover and find services that help helped them get through it. So I knew that at 12, but at 16 I was still living on the streets. I wasn't going to school. So effectively at school leaving age, I hadn't been to school. I had no qualifications or anything. Um, and I started to think, well, how, how am I ever going to, how am I ever going to get to be a social worker? Um, if I've not been to school, I've no qualifications, I'm living on the street, how the hell is this ever going to happen? Um, I made contact with one of my aunts, and she um, she arranged to let me sleep on her floor in the living room. She had four kids of her own, so there wasn't really any space. But as a result of um, her saying I could stay there, I was able to apply for a flat. So I got my first flat at 17. Is, is your mum trying, looking for you or anything? I don't know what was happening at the time. What I found out later, um, my mum died a few few, few years after that. What I found out on the, um, the day of my mum's funeral was that she'd been repeatedly raped by my stepfather as well and repeatedly beaten up by him. So she was probably terrified herself. I also found out on the day of my mum's funeral that my younger sister had been physically and sexually abused as well. I was a bulgy little so-and-so, so I ran away. And r running away was kind of like my sort of... It was the way I got out got out of the situation. My sister didn't feel she could leave my mum. I don't know where she knew what was going on. But she she continued to experience the abuse right right through until my mum died. Um, but on the day of my mum's funeral, that's when I found out about my mum and my sister. How did you find out on the funeral? 
my sister told me at the day of the funeral. Um, so I felt really guilty then because I felt as if I'd abandoned them and <clears throat> you know hadn't really helped them. And then the, on the night of my mum's funeral, the, you know, the very day that she'd been buried, my stepfather kicked my sister out of the house. So in it, at the time, that seemed like a, a nightmare. You know, like I couldn't even look after himself. I, I was going to look after my sister. But it actually meant that she was getting away from the abuse at that stage as well. So looking back, mum probably either didn't know or was too frightened to do anything. Um, find out after that, actually, after the funeral, I find out that he'd also um, <clears throat> raped my mother's younger sister, the one that I was staying with, um, and he'd abused a number of children in the community. So a real, real high-profile pro prolific abuser. I didn't know any of that, obviously, when I was young. I just knew what was happening to me, and I need to get away from it or he might kill me. Um, so yeah, anyway, going back to um, living on the floor in my, yeah. my aunt's living room, um, that meant I was able to get a flat. So I got my own flat at 17, started thinking about trying to get back into education. I was still using loads of drugs and my head was still all over the place. What sort of drugs are you using? Um, pretty heavy stuff. Oh, yeah. uh, I started off in cannabis and I was using cocaine and um, yeah, a lot of a lot of cocaine. That, that was probably the main one that I used, but... As you can imagine, that really messed my head up even yeah. more, but kind of helped me deal with it at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I managed to go back to school. Um, so you're addicted there to drugs? Yeah, I, would, I, I didn't think of it at the time as being addicted. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was something I did to get through every day. But yeah, I probably was addicted. Um, and it took me, at the point of 16, 17, when I got the flat, it took me another 10 years to get off drugs. I still drank alcohol, which yeah. is obviously a drug, but yeah. it took me another 10 years to get off everything else. Yeah. And there's quite a few times during that period where I thought a better way out would be to end it. You said quite a lot to yourself, though. Yeah. Um, throughout my teenage years, I regularly thought about suicide. Regularly. I thought it would be an easier way out. Quicker way out. Wouldn't have to didn't have to live with what was going on in my head. I'd and obviously you've just been given the guilt by knowing that your sister and your mum... That added to on it. ...on top of it. Yeah, that added to it. Um, so on the day of my mum's funeral, I, I mean, I'd, I'd had the flat a few years and then I got a little house. So I was about 21 at this stage. The day of the, day of the funeral, we moved my mum in to my house. Uh, sorry, mum's funeral, my sister yeah. moved her into my house. I went back into work the next day. I got sacked. Got what were you working at? I was working for the Northern Ireland Railways at the time. I was doing deliveries. Yeah. Um, just, just a basic job, but at least I was getting money coming in. I was studying on the side, trying to get some qualifications. But because of all the drug use, I was taking loads of time off work. Um, I mean, sometimes I didn't even know it was daytime, so I wasn't going into work. Um, Are you just taking these drugs on your own, or have you got like some sort of community around yeah, you? Yeah, I was just, I knew, I knew some of the dealers in the area in Belfast, yeah. and there's a few houses that we used to go to, and a few sort of like slums and stuff, really. Um, so we'd kind of meet up, and none of these people were friends. You know, it was just people that you'd yeah. skin up with or like do whatever you're dealing with. So loads of times days just pass by, and I've... I was in such a, a fog, I didn't, I didn't 
didn't know why it was neither there or where I was really. Can you can you remember a, a, a certain specific time where you just thought I need to now change this around? Was there a defining moment like a cathartic experience or anything? You just thought, yeah. Um, I started because when I was living rough as a teenager, um, I was always looking for somewhere dry and warm. And one of the things I started to do was go to a youth club that was in a church. I'm I'm atheist. I've always kind of been atheist. Yeah. I, I kind of even as a child thought. How can there possibly be a God? If there was a God, the things that are happening to me wouldn't be happening. Yeah. Wouldn't let it happen. That was always my mentality. But nonetheless, I thought this church is warm and dry. And the good thing was they give you food. Yeah. Um, so I started going there. And there was a <clears throat> one of the youth workers that was there. I mean, I didn't know at the time, but she was a qualified teacher. But I just saw her there as a youth worker. So I used to go and kind of chat, just get food and stuff started to tell her little bits and pieces and she never judged me she never asked too many questions what but, sort of pieces are you telling her uh, I, to- I had told her that I was kind of not going to school um she didn't judge me for that then i told her i was stealing stuff she didn't judge me for that i eventually told her i was i was living rough she didn't judge me for that and i think about eight months after i met her i was having a conversation with her one day and i, I told her about um you know, the first time I was raped, I told her about the time I went to the police and what they did. And she listened. I really wasn't sure. She was the first person I'd ever told. I really wasn't <clears throat> sure, you know, how she was going to respond. Uh, and actually her response probably was the thing that made the difference, the cathartic mo- moment that you talked about. She looked me in the eye and she said, yeah, you've had a shit time. What are you going to do about it? Not the response I expected. But if she'd, if she'd pitied me or yeah, like sympathy, sympathy or anything like that, that just wouldn't have worked for me. That was the thing that really made me think, no, I, I decided at 12 I wanted to be a social worker and I wanted to help kids. <clears throat> but that was the moment where I thought, you fucking act together. You know, get a place to live, start getting into education, start finding a, a way out. Still took 10 years, 11 years. Um, but there's no support system back then, though, is there? You kind of, like you said, just kind of got to grit your teeth. And what, what what support system was there out there? I suppose if it really known where to look, there might have been something through school or yeah. something through social services. But I was living rough. I didn't have a network. I didn't have a circle of fr- friends, really. I couldn't really go to my family there wasn't anything that I thought was there for me yeah. so I've kind of felt totally alone all those years yeah and would you say that's like one of the the, the most horrible thing the loneliness the the loneliness I think was the most frightening thing yeah I'm wondering what would happen to me whether I'd live for the next day but the drugs kind of helped get through that right drugs and alcohol Kind of help get through that, but it was tough. It's tough. I mean, it was sometimes I didn't know what day it was, didn't know what date it was. I kind of had a sense of the seasons changing, but most of the time I was too out of it. Too out of it. because what's happened to you? How, how can you trust anybody else either? Didn't feel like I could trust. I love you the most. Like didn't feel like I could trust anybody, but I also didn't feel. I felt dirty. Yeah, I didn't feel worthy. 
of anybody trusting me or helping me. I felt, I felt ashamed. So even if, even if I had to find somebody that could help, I, I didn't, I, I couldn't have asked. I just couldn't have asked. I didn't know how to, but I, I just couldn't have. Um, yeah, but th that, that moment, that youth worker saying to me, yeah, you've had a shit time, what are you going to do about it? That, that changed it. That was when I, I made the absolute decision that whatever it was going to take, didn't give a fuck what it was, it, it just didn't care, but whatever it was going to take, I was going to do it. So from then you got yourself a house at 21 and your sister moved in with you. Got a flat at 17, yeah. roughly 17, moved into my house at 20 yeah. and my sister moved in at 21. And that was when I started thinking um, to really get, move forward and, and make a difference to other people's lives. I needed to move to England, but I couldn't do that straight what made, away. What made you think that? There wasn't the opportunities in Ireland. I didn't think there was an opportunity to get a job in social care. I had no qualifications, so I couldn't see any way into college. And I thought in England there would be more opportunities. And a bit of a fresh start. Get get away from everything, yeah, fresh start, get away from... I mean, Thinking about it at the time, I was thinking it'll be a fresh start, but in reality, looking back, I was running away again. Yeah. Running away yet again. But I couldn't do it straight away, so I let my sister stay with me for 18 months or so until she'd started to come to terms with mum's death and you know what she'd been through as well. I started trying to look for support for her. Um, I suppose I put her first, really. And then I started talking to her about the fact that I wanted to move to England because I wanted to try and get to college. What did she say? She was terrified because she didn't know what would happen to her. Yeah. Um, but I arranged for a distant relative um, to give her somewhere to live, look after her for a while. And she, she was able to go to college back in Ireland. <clears throat> so once, once we talked about that and she was kind of okay with it. Um, so you do think you're going to do this? You're going to move to England on your own? Yeah. Don't know anybody. Didn't know anybody. Um, but I wanted to sort my sister out first, yeah. get her somewhere to live, get her into college. And then I, I came to England in, in, it was January, so it was bloody cold. I had 60 quid in my pocket, I a suitcase and a ghetto blaster. What have you got in your head? What are you, where are you going to go? In my head, I thought, don't know where I'm going to go, but I've lived on the streets before, so if I have to, I will. Um, but I phoned my grandmother from, actually came to Manchester. I was going to go to London. i tell you a story about going to London. Yeah, um, a, friend, a friend of mine um, said he wanted to move to England as well. Um, but he's, he's, he was a qualified chef, so he got a job. Um, another friend of ours, there's a theme here about drugs. Another friend of ours had been living in London in a one-bedroom flat. But he got, he got done for drug dealing, so he's in prison. Um, and he said, uh, they're keeping my flat for me because my sentence is only six months or something, whatever it was. Um, so he said, if you want to stay in my flat, you can. So I was going to, it's one bedroom flat. So John was going to have one room, like a bedroom or something. I was going to use the living room as a bedroom. We're going to share the kitchen and the bathroom. That was the plan. And then our mate, Jack, his girlfriend phoned. Um, she phoned John. He was in London by this stage. And said, I've decided to come to London. I'm going to live in a flat. And I'm bringing the four dogs. I thought, fuck. 
can't can't live in a flat with like two other people one one bedroom flat two other people and, and four dogs and i thought i'm not i'm not gonna go to london with nowhere to stay so i came to manchester uh random i mean up until the day before i was going to london booked a flight to manchester arrived in manchester airport one suitcase ghetto blaster and 60 quid from my grandmother told her where i was and said do we know anybody in manchester we any family here any any relatives or anything and thankfully there was some like distant relatives people i'd never met but i phoned this woman my grandmother gave me the the number how old are you this time i was about 23 right um phoned this woman told her who i was so she knew like the family connection but we'd never met i said is there any chance of staying with you for a while um and she said, when? I said, well, now I'm at Manchester Airport. So she sent her husband to come pick me up and let me stay with her. And she said, you can stay as long as you like. But within three weeks, I got two jobs. Um, one was working in a, a nightclub in Seal as a barman. <clears throat> and the other was selling kitchens. Now, anybody that knows me knows I am not a practical person. I know fuck all about building kitchens or selling kitchens. I've never <laughs> sold anything in my life. Um, anyway, they gave me a company car, so that's that's why I wanted the job. Um, I, I wanted I wanted a car because I wanted to get to know the area and try and find somewhere to live. Um, and I used the car, not to go out try and selling kitchens, but drive around Manchester looking for somewhere to live. And I got a flat share. Um, and once I got the flat share, then I started to think about um, what I was going to do next. Can we take a read? Yeah, yeah. Cool. I just think I freeze. Oh, yeah, yeah, just put it on. If you go tall or anything, mate, just splits the toilet. I just was aware I was getting cold and starting no, to shake. Um, yeah, so um, I, I used this car to drive around Manchester looking for somewhere, and I got the flat share and I got a couple of jobs. And then I started thinking about, right, how do I get into social work? Um, and at the time, there was this thing, if you, you if you were on benefits, there was, I can't remember the name of the bloody scheme, but there was some scheme that was supposed to, to get you into, like, the kind of work you wanted to do. Um, but you had to have been unemployed for 12 months or something like that. Um, and as, as you just heard, of, I got these couple of jobs in Manchester, so I wasn't actually unemployed. Anyway, I rocked up at this place um, because I would, just arrived from Ireland. I told them I'd been unemployed for 12 months and they didn't check. So they let me they let me join the scheme. And then I found out it was mostly for people, it was mostly girls who wanted to do hairdressing or boys that wanted to do mechanics. I thought, I don't want to fucking be a mechanic or a hairdresser. So I told the people that were running the scheme I wanted to be a social worker and I wanted to get into social care. And they said, ah, we haven't got anything like that. I said, well, I'll create it. I'll create it for you. So I did. What? I actually created a scheme for this like unemployment service. It was like a job centre thing. So I, I researched it. Um, How were you researching it? Just um, back then, this was before the internet yeah, and all that kind of shit. So Yellow Pages, mate. Got the old Yellow Pages out looking for um, social care organisations, charities, all that kind of stuff. People that supported children in particular because that, that was my area of interest. Um, then I started phoning them. But when I was phoning them, I was actually pretending that I was a representative oh, of this scheme rather than somebody that was looking for a job. Very good. Um, so I got a number of uh, 
private organisations that, that were running social care services and a number of charities signed up. So this, this job scheme was able to bring in other un unemployed people and then offer them placements in social care as a result of what it did. Um, but the idea was that you still stayed on your benefits, so you got your benefits plus expenses, um, bus fares and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, um, I, I kind of set that up, and then I, I, I contacted the, the agencies who'd agreed to be part of it. I, I went out to one of them one day, and I turned up and I introduced myself, and I said that you know, it was from this scheme, what, what not, this job scheme. But I said I was looking for a placement for myself, um, and I said, I was talking to the deputy manager of the service. The manager wasn't there. It was the manager I dealt with to set the service up. The de deputy manager didn't seem to know anything about it. So the way I phrased it was, oh, this has all been organized and agreed. Um, I'm your new placement. So he, he didn't actually know that it wasn't agreed. So he just kind of said, yeah, all right. Um, what, what is it you're going to do? I said, well, I've got to work for you full time for at least six months. Um, so he just put me on the router and I started the next day. No checks. No, I, don't, I don't know how they got around the regulations back then. Maybe maybe it wasn't as strict as it is now. Um, so for six months, I was officially on the scheme, claiming benefit. So I'd given up you know, the other two jobs at this stage. I was getting my benefits. I was able to walk to this this um, job. Um, I wasn't being paid for it. like, But I was able to walk to it from a flat share. Um, but the scheme said I had to claim bus fares. So to get to it by bus, I would have had to get a, this was out in Disbury, and the, the placement was in Burnage. I had to get a bus from Disbury into Manchester and a bus from Manchester back out to Burnage every day, both ways. So I claimed That's the bus fares. Yeah, but I walked it. It took me 10 minutes to walk it, but I had to claim the bus fares every day. And then they gave me an extra tenner a week for, I don't know, expenses. But then because this placement I got was a charity, and they knew I was on benefits. They were giving me food. So when I was working, they fed me, and then they gave me food to take home. And I was getting my extra tenner, and I was getting my extra bus fares. I thought, I thought that's an easy life. Um, so for six months, I was effectively working full-time without any pay. Which is a scheme that you've set up? I set the scheme up. And um, then now you're... And then I was, one of the, I was the first social care placement on the scheme. Um, and it was through... What was the scheme called? I can't remember the name of it. This is like this is over twenty years ago, Tim. I mean, it was like a job center scheme for unemployed people. For you know anybody being, I think you had to be under thirty and uh, unemployed for twelve months or more. But as I say, it was mostly fellas that were interested in being a mechanic and girls that were interested in being hairdressers. So I I set it up for social care. So what kind um, of thing are you doing? Um, the the placement that I had was working in what was in those days called a halfway house for young offenders yeah. um so it was all like 16 and 17 year old lads who were kind of on the edges of like getting sent to prison or drug dealing and all that kind of stuff and it was about trying to work with them and support them get them back into college or back into an apprenticeship or um you know just keeping them giving them somewhere to live but also trying to get them back on the right path really um i absolutely loved it I love going in there, so although I was supposed to be doing 37 hours free, I normally did 50, 60 hours a week. I just absolutely loved it. Um, at the end of the six months, the scheme was supposed to finish, but because I set the scheme up, I didn't actually tell them that, so they didn't know it was supposed to finish, so I just carried on doing it. So nine months in, um, a job came up 
um, I applied for it and got a paid job in, in the same place, doing the same thing. So I moved from being like unemployed, getting the extra kind of tenner a week or whatever it was, to getting like a proper salary. So it was then classed, back in those days, it was classed as a residential social worker. You're not allowed to use that term anymore, you just call them support workers. Why? What's the reason for that? Um, the term social worker is not a protected job, protected title. Right. So you have to be qualified to use the term social worker. But right. back then, they were called residential social workers because these these young people lived there. It was their, their home kind of thing. Um, so I used to do like late shifts and early shifts and sometimes sleep over. Um, but then when I got on the contract, I was being paid a proper wage. I can't remember what it was now, but to, to me it was decent money. Um, and I thought like I was doing social work. Um, I wasn't. I was a support worker, but I still thought it was social work. But it was the start of the career. What is the that difference I wanted. between a, um, a social worker and a support worker? Then, social worker is somebody who's been to college, or university. These days, it's a three-year degree course. Yeah. Um, so you're a qualified social worker. Then you have to register with the mm. General Social Care Council, and you have to keep up your um, qualifications and um, demonstrate that your level of practice meets a certain standard. Um, and generally, social workers, qualified social workers work for local authorities and do things like child protection work and right. uh, you know court work and that kind of stuff. Support workers work in um, residential services or um, daycare services and, right, okay. and they're, they're more kind of a, a helper rather yeah. than somebody that's dealing with all the legal legal stuff that social workers deal with. So I wasn't dealing with you know the legal stuff or any court stuff. I was just dealing with these young men who were using drugs or you know by this stage I'd stopped using drugs so kind of knew what they were going through to some extent. Some of them had been homeless, so I knew about that. Some so of them you, were, you're on your experience here, right? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was using my experience to transport them. Um, what was your most sort of like rewarding from that time? Can you remember the sort of most rewarding? Yeah, the, uh, at the time, every every day, there was little things that you could see where there was a change or like somebody had a light bulb moment and uh, something changed in their life or they made a decision to go to college or they made a decision to like contact their mum again after yeah. not speaking for years or contact their dad or whatever it might have been. Little things like that. But actually it was only a few years afterwards when some of those young men who by this stage were maybe 20 or 22 contacted me and said, oh, I went to college and I did this or I'm a qualified mechanic now or, you know, I'm married now. I've got, I've got uh, my own place. I've got a kid. You know, when you, you hear stories like that a couple of years later, it's kind of like, God, that, that really shows it was making a difference it was hard to tell it says a lot doesn't it just like somebody just believing in you just one time just kind of saying you know just just giving you that thing that you know it's going to be all right or just giving you that little tiny bit of hope but you've never really had that well that youth that youth worker in the church gave me that, that one, yeah, yeah. That oh, one yeah, time that, that one. and i wanted to be that person to give that to these young men that i was working with um yeah that's true and a few months after uh, I was given a contract, I then became a manager. Um, and I, I, I did that for about two years in that service. And then I moved to a more senior management role in a, another kind of organization, still working with kids. Are you, are you changing when you're doing this? Are you changing any processes that, processes that they've got in place that you think, you know what, we can actually do this a bit better? Yeah, I'm a bullshit kind of bastard. Yeah, so yeah. when I see something that I think's not working, yeah. I don't hold back. I just say, I don't think that's working because, and this yeah. is what I think you should do. So there's there's a thing within um, like res, residential social care, if I can use that term. So like children's homes and places that people live that where they can't, can't live with their, their family or whatever. 
there's a thing called the keywork system. So there's always like one named person. Now, when I started doing that job back then, there was no processes or systems in place. Key workers like had a chat with these people, but there was no focus to it. Um, there was no written records about what they talked about, what the purpose was. So I set a system up where you looked at themes and the themes were connected to what was going on in those young people's lives. Whether it was about their drug use or their offending behavior, but sort of looked at it in a thematic way. Um, and set it up so that those those meetings had to take place, those discussions had to take place weekly, but kept them informal, kept them kind of friendly, not not where uh, like a, a young person was told, you've got to come in and talk yeah. about this or that or the other. So set a system up, but allowed it to be flexible enough so that, um, I mean, for example, one of, one of the key ways um, I did it was just taking kids out from McDonald's um, other fast foods are available folks but you know mcdonald's is the one that most of them seem to like yeah. um so we we just went for mcdonald's and had a chat so for as far as they were concerned they were just having a chat with somebody that they knew was interested in them uh, somebody that give a shit about them somebody that was talking to them about their life what was going on in their life mm. not not trying to tell them what to do but find out what they were interested in so from their point of view that's what but was did, happening did you take the same approach as what that lady did with you because i feel like she knew what to say to you because she i knew that she didn't want to talk sympathetic she needed to give you the sort of hard truth and every yeah. person needs talking to differently like like in yeah. business you know i manage everybody i can't talk to one person the way i talk to another one and yeah. she knew what you needed to hear right right there and then i think you're right Emma. over those eight months or whatever before i mean i plucked up the courage to tell her what was really going on i think she got to know the kind of personality that i that i am yeah and that was the approach i took with with those young men in that in that yeah. first kind of job that i had in social care I tried to find out how what made them tick how they worked yeah and some of them did need an arm around the shoulder yeah, and yeah. somebody to say look i'm here for you yeah. it's going to be okay it's a skill set that mate isn't it I didn't see it as a skill at the Did time. You know? I, I, didn't, I didn't even know it was a skill. Yeah. I, I just, I was interested in people. I was interested mm. in young people in particular. The pain I'd gone through, I didn't want other people to feel that. And if they were going through that pain, I wanted to take it away. And for me, that's what I was doing. It wasn't about using skills. It was about just being there for them. Talking about whatever they wanted to talk about, but trying to also steer it in a different direction. Try to get them to think about you know what's going to make what's going to make it a bit better for them. You know, maybe trying to cut back a bit in the drugs, or stop on the drugs, or getting into an apprenticeship, or going to college, or you know, just giving them little planting little seeds of like positive yeah, thinking yeah. and try to help them reframe the stuff that's going stuff on. Stuff they their never mind. thought of before. A kind of different perspective on what they were already thinking. Because yeah. a lot, I I know when I when I was in that position, it felt hopeless. Yeah. Um, and as I said a while ago. I often thought about taking my own life. And I know a lot of those young men thought the same. They thought it was hopeless. They thought they were worthless. They thought they had no future. The way I talked to them was always, doesn't matter what you've been through, you have a future. What do you want that future to look like? You need to shape it. So helping them reframe their own thinking. And I'm not saying it was easy. And I'm not saying it was like it happened during then, you know, one conversation it was done and... Sometimes, you know, you're talking to these young men for, for months before you saw any change at all. Um, sometimes it was years later before I realized that um, anything... I, I, re I remember getting a phone call from a, a lad called Sean. Um, 
and he started the conversation by saying who he was, and I was thinking, fuck, who is this? Who? Now, you know, t- it clicked. God, five or six years ago, um, since I worked with him, at the time he, he contacted me, and he said, the conversation um, started like this. He said, do you remember that Tuesday night in <laughs> September when you were cook- <laughs> cooking chili? I went, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, while I was cooking chili, he was helping me. I was cooking chili for all the lads that lived in this halfway house, as it was called. Um, so we just, the, the support workers like myself, we we helped them cook. That was one of our, our tasks. Um, I mean, I can't cook for, for, for loving their money, but I give it a go. It was more about the interaction, actually. Um, so he remembered this this Tuesday night or whatever it was that he said. Um, and we were cooking chili. And he was able to describe what the weather was like. He was able to tell me who was there. And then he said to me, um, and you said something to me that's changed my life forever. And I thought, really? God, I, I, I don't even remember what I said. Um, and it was just that, that there is hope. And apparently that was the, the thing that changed his outlook on life. But I didn't know at the time. I, I mean, I was oblivious. I just carried on cooking. That's got to feel good, um, mate. Hearing it six years later felt, it, it kind of almost brought a tear to my eye. You know, yeah. definitely felt good. Um but yeah, we're working through all of that and changing systems as I went. And I think that's how I got promoted in, in, um, in the management rules so quickly because I was setting up systems and processes and making it easier for other workers to support people. Um, but I was also getting really frustrated because I used to think, why can other people not do this the way I'm doing it? Why can they not see what I see? Why Why do they not have the kind of conversations now, I'm having with young people? Do you think that's because a lot of people have been to college or wherever and they, they've kind of fitted into that mould and a lot of red tape with it where you're looking at it from a total different perspective here. You're actually seeing yeah. people as individuals and not just a... I think some people that um, get into this kind of work, into social care, if they've come in through college, they've been taught certain processes or systems that they think they have to go through as a tick box yeah. exercise. Yeah. Um, actually, some people get into social care work because they want a decent salary, but they can't get into any other kind of work. Yeah. And it's fairly easy to get into because there's a, a national shortage of um, staff in, in these kind of um, jobs. Um, but sometimes they don't even like young people and they, they don't engage. They're not, they're not people people. They don't yeah. engage well with others. They don't, they don't try to find out. They're more interested in telling the other person about them or yeah. what their issues are they're not interested in finding out about the other yeah. person so yeah d- different kind of approach um i wasn't i wasn't there for me or or my career was there because i wanted to change lives i wanted to transform lives and if it when i first got into it i kind of thought if it takes me the rest of my life to change one life that'll be enough um but then i know i've changed thousands of lives you know in, in my career uh, talk about transforming lives really and do, you, do you ever sit and think to yourself and kind of give yourself that self-esteem to kind of go you know what i have done that have you ever already sat down and appreciated that um it took an awful long time for me to be able to do that yeah i mean even when i was getting promoted into more senior management roles i used to think i don't really deserve this yeah. you know that voice inside was still telling me you're not worth i'm it. not worthy I, yeah. this shouldn't be happening to me i'm uh, i'm a dirty little bastard as, as i was yeah. told when i was first raped um so I, I still felt that everything that was happening to me i, I didn't deserve but the, the more the more my career progressed if you like and the better salary i got and the better life got for me 
the more I felt I had to give. So the harder I worked and the more people I wanted to support because I almost felt guilty that yeah. my life was getting easier when other people were still having a shit time. Um, but then there, there, there came like a, 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 like a block where I, I got into management roles, but then I couldn't go any further. And I was getting frustrated because I was seeing other people um, not, not really having good relationships with the people who were supporting or not making a difference or not kind of achieving the things I was achieving. And I wanted, I wanted to help them do that. And the only way I thought I could do that was to go to college and get a qualification. <clears throat> and in, that was in, in social work and then uh, and get become a more senior manager. So I had greater influence. Power hungry, I suppose. I wanted, yeah, to, have yeah. power, I wanted yeah. to have the power to change things. And I thought becoming a social worker was a way to do it. Boy, was I wrong. But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that <laughs> maybe in a bit. Um, so I, I contacted uh, uh, Manchester Met um, to find out how, how I go about becoming a, a qualified social worker. So they asked me what qualifications I had. Uh, that was an easy question to answer. None. Um, well, you need qualifications. I said, there must be another way. And they said, the only other way is what they call experiential learning. And you need to put a portfolio together. And there's all these like criteria and you need to demonstrate you've you've done certain things in, in an actual job role. Like and what what kind of things? Things like supporting people through a crisis or... Yeah. Um, but have you not done that within... I had done a lot of that, but I didn't know that I needed to write it all down oh, and say right, how I'd done it and put right. a portfolio together. So they told me all of the... I think it was like 12 topics and each topic was broken down into like subtopics and stuff. I mean, this is a long time ago, so I can't really remember all the detail. But what they said to me was... You know, if you start now, um, I think I was having this conversation in, in July or something like that of whatever year it was. They said, if you start now, you'll be able to um, get the portfolio done within about 12 months and you might be able to be considered for admission next September. I said, no, 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 no. September this year, this September, how do I get in this September? I want this done and dusted. Um, they said, it's not possible to do it that quickly. I said, I'll be the judge of that. You tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. Just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. So within six six weeks, I'd completed um, the uh, portfolio. I'd, I'd looked back at all the stuff I'd done in the past year. At that stage, I had a few years experience um, working in social care. And I was able to contact a few people that I'd worked with and get like witness statements. How do you know what in terms of the portfolio, well, yeah, well, putting it all together, out, out, where do you go to research? And well, they give you the the, the headings and the, all of the different. But you, you've got no qualifications. No, you've got nothing. No. How do you get? How do you wrap your? Because my head would just fall off. How well, do you wrap your head around doing that? Do you know what? When I started it, I still had that thing in my head because I hadn't really been to school and had no qualifications. And actually, one of the other things that happened to me as a kid was um, I'm naturally left-handed, yeah. and. At my age, back when I was a child in Ireland, a uh, very Catholic country, being left-handed was considered sinful. What? So we used to get caned on our left hand when we tried to use our left hand. So as a kid, as I was trying to learn to write, I was always getting caned. So I had to try and use my right hand. It didn't. I've never heard that before in my life. Talk to anybody who's a left-hander my age, what happened to them in Ireland? That's a common thing. Um, any Any Catholic country, it probably happened back then. Because it was seen as sinful. Don't know why it was seen as sinful. But it just bloody was. Yeah, no idea, no idea at all. But it, it's what they did. So, because my, my, 
I had to try and write with my right hand. It was pretty shocking. And it's still to this day, my handwriting is virtually illegible. But because of that, people thought it was stupid. And I got told at school it was stupid, like in primary school. So even from primary school, I thought it was stupid. So when I, when I started this portfolio, I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to understand this. I'm not going to understand what they're talking about. I'm not going to understand what I need to do. I'm too stupid. But as I started to read it, I thought, this just makes sense. You know, when I was talking about supporting people through a crisis, I was thinking, God, I've done that so many times. And all I have to do is describe what I did. Easy. Um, so I just literally looked at each section and thought, what does that mean? Try to work it out in my head. And th okay, I don't know if I'm right, but that's what I think it means. So that's what I'm going to do. And I went back to people I worked with. I contacted people I'd supported. I asked them for witness statements. Um, put all the stuff together. And it just seemed so easy. And I thought, I must be doing it wrong. It can't be this easy to get into university or get into college. Um, and it was a, a university course I was applying for. Um, it can't be this easy. But I took it back six weeks later. Didn't hear anything until the start of September. And I'd been accepted on the course. So... Six weeks portfolio, got so accepted. Something that should have took you 12 months. Something that they said would take at least 12 months, yeah. I did in six well, weeks. Knowing to them, you didn't know the experience that you've had within there. Well, they didn't really ask the question, so they didn't know what I was going to be able to put in it. Um, but I suppose they were, they were looking at it as somebody starting from nothing and gathering the evidence, if you like, over the 12 months, whereas I wrote up stuff that I'd done in the past couple of years as evidence. Um, so I got on the course um, and it was delivered. It was overseen by Manchester Met. What are you doing that? What are you doing for money? Uh, I was still working. Yeah, um, I was still so working full time. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Well, right. um, so I put the portfolio together just in spare time in those six weeks. But then when I went to college itself, it, um, it was a Manchester Met um, col uh, course, but it was delivered at Stockport College. Um, but I only had to go in, get this, a full-time full course. I only had to go in four hours a week. <laughs> Four hours a week, full time course. The, so the only the only time that was different was when I had to do my social work placement, um, and I had two of those to do. One was for six weeks, and the other was I think it was three months. So I arranged with my job to have unpaid time off. So I went and did some bar work when I was doing my placement. That was the course, two lectures. Um, and then you had to put loads of like, like stuff, evidence yeah. together and do loads of assignments and stuff. And you know, on day one, they were talking about assignments. And I was thinking, I don't know what an assignment is. And then somebody said, like essays, you've got to write five and six thousand word essays. And I was thinking, shit, <laughs> never even written a shopping list, let alone bloody assignment. How, how am I going to do this? Um, but then I started going to the lectures and these, these lecturers started talking about stuff and I remember one of the first lectures, I think it was the second day, I was sitting near the front of the lecture hall and this lecturer started talking and I was thinking, what, what, are you, what is this? So I'm look, looking around me thinking, what's going on? Because it just sounded really dead simple. I thought, I'm here to learn. I, I don't want you to be talking to me about your life. I'm, I'm here to learn. You know, I, I, I didn't really know what to expect, to be honest. Um, I was looking around the room and I could see everybody else furiously writing notes down. I was thinking, there isn't anything here that's stimulating but me. you don't already know. I just don't get what this is about. And I started talking to some of the other people on the 
on on the brakes and stuff who were on the course and they were saying god this is really tough i'm i'm struggling to keep up i i, I don't really understand what they're saying and i'm thinking i think this is so simple i think it's so simple first assignment i thought i'll just give it a go i'll do my best you only had to get 40 to pass first assignment i think i got 60 something i thought shit how to do that um and then as it as my confidence started to grow i thought maybe i'm not as stupid as i was told and maybe i can do this um and i ended up getting really good marks uh for all of my assignments so back then becoming a qualified social worker was just a two-year um two-year college course yeah. linked to a university and by the end of it i thought do you know what that that was fairly easy and i was able to do it and still work and you know yeah. st- still do everything else i was doing um i thought fuck it i might as well just do another year and get a degree so uh, i transferred to um university of central lancaster to top it up but for one year and that was the first degree that i did um so I only, only I had to go to college for eight months, uh, university um, for eight months to top that up to the degree level. So this kid who was told he was stupid at school and he didn't really go to school as a teenager and left school without qualifications, got a first class degree. Um, and then I got the bug for learning. And I've been to university, a number of different universities since then. And I've got a, f- a number of different degrees. What, what, tell me the degrees you've got. Uh, well, that one was the topping the, the social work course up. So that was um, social work and community studies. Then I did a psychology degree. Then I did a psychology's master's. Then I did a master's in pediatric health. Then I did uh, a PhD in strategic leadership within the volunteering community sector. Then I did a PhD in advanced management techniques. So I've... To a guy you can't even write... A guy who, <laughs> if you looked at my writing, you'd think I'm stupid because I can't write and was told I was stupid. Fucking hell, mate, that is next level, that. So I've got, like, six degrees, two two bachelors, two masters, two PhDs. What, what, after you've got, like, your, your first degree, your master's degree, what, what are you thinking for you for yourself then? Well, when I did the first bachelor's degree, my idea was that that would help me open doors and progress my career to become a senior manager. And to be fair, it did. Um, but I was still working for local authorities. After I became a qualified social worker, I worked at um, Salford, and then I worked for Blackpool and then Blackburn. So I was still working for local authorities and still progressing up the career ladder. But I was still really, really um, frustrated that so many other people, including qualified social workers, um, to me, didn't seem to be doing a good job. They didn't seem to be really making a difference to anybody that they were supposedly working with. Um, so, I, I mean, I was getting frustrated with that and getting frustrated with the fact that I couldn't really change. I could change what I was doing. I could implement new systems for me and my teams, but I couldn't do it whole scale. Um, to do that, what does that take to do it wholesale? Well, for me, what that meant was getting to the point where the frustration overtook my desire to still work as a social worker and work in a local authority. And that's when I stepped out and decided to run my own business, providing um, care services and therapy services and education services. How the hell do you do that? Um, Being a bossy little so-and-so that doesn't really have a sense of fear. Um, Which is living on the streets has taught you. 
Well, living on the streets taught me you're going to feel fear, but if you let it stop you, you'll be paralyzed. So I've throughout my life felt fear in many ways, doing many things, but I've never let it stop me doing anything. Um, I'd never run a business before. I didn't know how to run a business, but I thought running a business means I can do it my way. And if I mess it up, it's my fault. If it's a success, you know, that's down to me and the team. So what's but, the first step? So the first step was to resign and take over an organization called Burtonshaw. What do you do? So this is in 2006. <laughs> Burtonshaw in 2006 was technically bankrupt. But because, although it's a company, and a, like a standard business, like any other business, it also has a charity registration. So because it had a charity registration, although it was technically bankrupt, nobody forced it in the administration, but it should have been. So for the first six years, day in, day out, it was about trying to... Oh, let me tell you this. Um, in the first year, I had a turnover of one million. That's not bad for any, any organization, any business in the first year. How much of that do you think might have been profit? Grand total of a loss of 240000 really? So I come out of a secure local authority job, good salary, good pension, and in my first year made a loss of 240000 Didn't I do bloody oh, well? I was, I was well excited <laughs> um, because what I was doing day in, day out was looking at how do I reduce the expenditure? How do I increase the income? How do I How do you develop? Know this, because you've not got any business qualifications. No, I know. What you? How, well, how are you learning all this? Like I learned everything else to start with, as I did it. Just getting books. Get stuck there, in. Um, Two thousand six. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. starting. Yeah. The, the, we had a few computers around at that stage. It was well before everybody had a computer in front of them. Um, but yeah, it. it it, the internet was around. I mean, you still had to do the old, those things that sounded like yeah, funny yeah. alien noises. <laughs> um, it took ages to get that logged on and stuff. But yeah, you, you know, you could, you could look things up, but it wasn't anything like Google searches these days where you can find out anything and go on YouTube to do how to, you know, like how to set up a business. It would have been good if I could have done that back then. I really hadn't got a clue. Um, but what I knew was I needed to like, to deliver a quality service that was going to transform lives. I also knew I needed to charge a fair price, but a price that was going to create a profit just to margin. Just let everybody know, Dave, um, what Burton Shaw was back then, just to let everybody know what was Burton Shaw back then. Um, when I when I took it over, it was operating as a small school and a very small children's home for young people with significant physical impairment, severe learning disability, and, and other related conditions. Yeah. I've repositioned it since then. We're, we're now a learning disability and autism specialist provider. Um, the organization itself had been set up in 1956. And as I say, it did have a charity registration, but it was registered as a company, company's house, just the same as any other business, but it was tec technically bankrupt. So there were some children attending the school uh, and some children who were living in the children's home that was operated at the time. And I, because I think actually the reason I took over a business rather than start one was because I thought taking over one would be easier. Actually, once I got into it and I started to learn and learn just what, what a mess it was in, it would have been easier to start it from scratch. Because if it had been started from scratch, I would have been looking at, you know, selling a service or a product, trying to make some money. 
But actually what I was trying to do was recover a deficit. It was operating at a loss. It took me six years um, to get to the point where the, the business turned around. Those first few years particularly were really hard work. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was learning as I went. I was making loads of mistakes. But you know what? The only failure is when you give up. I don't mind people making mistakes. I don't mind making mistakes myself. I don't, I don't ever like making the same mistake twice. But if I make a mistake, I pick myself up and I see it as a learning experience. What the fuck did I learn from, yeah. from failing there? What can I do differently next time? What can I do better next time? So there was a lot of that in those first few years. Um, I just, I didn't really know how to manage budgets. I didn't know how to create management accounts. I didn't know how to pitch to people to sell the service. I didn't know, I didn't even know how to price the service. I, I didn't know what its value was. I didn't know what my value was. Um, it's fair to say, like, didn't really have a clue. <laughs> didn't know what I was yeah. doing with anything. Um, but yeah, I, I started to reduce the, the, the kind of loss, if you like. Um, and by year six, it was just about breaking even. Um, in 2008, 2009, I was still making a significant loss, but I secured an investment of eight and a half million. Um, you think about it, like an organization that's, Turnover's about one, one and a half million at this stage, making a loss, yeah. able to secure an investment eight times its turnover. But how what? did you get that investment? Um, by not taking no for an answer, being bullshit again, going back to my days on the street, living yeah. on my wits. Um, I approached various banks. All the commercial banks said no. By this stage, I'd heard there were things called social lenders. I thought they might be interested. Yeah. Um, they were. Uh, I also found out that the, the government had set up... Um, uh, a, like an investment house or an investment company for organizations that provided social care, particularly in the kind of area and the space that I was working in, um, for organizations that were in a like, pretty difficult financial position and couldn't really get investment elsewhere. So most of this investment, it, it wasn't like grants or anything like that. This was investment loan um, and had to be paid back. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that, talking about feeling the fear, yeah. I thought, I'm taking on eight and a half million investment, eight million of which was a loan. How the bloody hell am I going to pay this back? I'm still making a loss. How am I going to, how am I going to pay it back? Terrified me. That it absolutely terrified me. But I knew that if I didn't do it, I couldn't reposition the business. I couldn't turn it around enough to secure its future. And I, I don't really know how I actually secured it other than the fact that I refused to take no for an answer if somebody said no i really hassled them i said why saying no why are you telling me that these disabled children do not deserve a good service so guilt tripped them yeah um and in the end i secure it was like a couple of different yeah. different entities that came together so i got uh one million from um a commercial bank. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this podcast, am I? Yeah. Nat West. Yeah. Um, I got uh, another million from a private lender who doesn't want to be named. And then I got the rest from what was called Future Builders England, which was this government thing that had been set up. But it was still a loan. And I still had to pay it back. And I still had to arrange terms to pay it back. But securing that in 2008, when I was still making a loss, enabled me to start building a brand new Burton Shaw. 
And I'm talking about what's physically. Your, what's your vision at that point? What What are you going to do with that eight million? What you, what my, you thinking? My vision at that time was to build a new head office and a new bespoke state-of-the-art special school and create three new children's homes so that it transformed the lives of at least 20 uh, children with special needs, special education need or disability. So my vision was to simply transport, build physical services, physical spaces that would transform the lives of 20 children. That was as far as my vision went at that time. It's changed dramatically since then, but at that time, that's what yeah. it was. So I secured the investment in 2008, but I actually didn't get it until 2010. And there was a there was an issue with timing and when it had to be drawn down. And but the one of the complicating factors was that they wouldn't um, they wouldn't allow me to buy the land that I needed to build on until I secured planning permission. Um, so I had to apply for planning permission. I eventually got it, but because of where it was, I needed that to be signed off by the Secretary of State for Community. So it took a long time. <laughs> Oh, you didn't even do that. The end just fall off. I didn't even know there was a S Secretary of State for Communities. I didn't know what it was. And when they told me I had to go and talk to a government minister, I thought, shit, what am I going to wear? That was my first thought. What am I going to wear? What, what do you wear when you go to government and go to Westminster? Because I'd never been before at that stage. Been a few times since. Passed a few more of them since. <laughs> um, but back then, I thought, bloody hell, what am I going to do? Um, and do I have to speak with an English accent? Will he be able to understand me? Um Anyway, I had to go and speak to him. I got got the planning permission and stuff. But the complicating factor then was that once the planning permission was, was in place, the person that was supposed to be buying the land off, um, who had agreed to sell it to me because it was redundant agricultural land, they'd agreed it to sell it to me for 50000 Once the planning permission was in place, they said, 1.1 million, please. So I kind of went, fuck off. Um and then there was a whole series of discussions to try to get the the price down to something that we could we could um, we could actually achieve. I eventually um, was able to agree four hundred and seventy five thousand for the land, but that meant taking one classroom off the proposed school. So I knew that it meant that I couldn't reach as many disabled children or provide a service for as many disabled children as I wanted to. Are you going? Are you having like sleepless nights while this is all happening? How are you managing your kind of stress levels and stuff? Um, I think at that point the alcohol just went up quite a bit. Did it? Um, and I think I was. Uh, I started to get a number of physical illnesses, which at the time I didn't realize were connected yeah. to the stress. Yeah. I started having problems with my digestive system and. You know, um, like acid reflux and all that yeah. kind of stuff, and I, I needed to get um, medication and stuff for that. Um, so I suppose it was just a level of stress that I wasn't really aware that it was managing, or maybe not managing. I wasn't aware it was affecting me, um, but it clearly was. I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, a lot I was of pressure, isn't it? A huge pressure, but I kept thinking it's about the kids. The kids deserve this. It doesn't matter about You've me. You've had that since you're 12. You've had that driving force since you were 12. I think the driving force is I've always thought it's it's other people. I'm doing this for others. I've, I've always felt I've got to do it for them. If I don't do it for them, who's going to do it? If I don't achieve it, if I don't succeed, what's going to happen to them? And actually, there's lots of children in, in the UK with special education needs and disability who still don't get the services that they need. And back then I was thinking, I just want to transform the lives of at least 20. That, that was the driving force. 
I knew it wouldn't last forever. I knew the pressure wouldn't last forever. I just hoped that I could get through it. And I was having like, people call them panic attacks, don't they? When you yeah. have that sensation of yeah, yeah, your yeah. heart going like far too fast and yeah. that kind of like dizziness and stuff. I was getting that all the time. Yeah. Um, and I was feeling sick all the time. Sometimes I could eat, but then I would throw up. And other times I felt sick and I couldn't eat. Not sleeping well, but I thought it doesn't matter. I've just got to do it. Just got to get through it. Um, yeah, so that that was difficult to get the, uh, the the um the the land secured, and you know this person who'd agreed to sell it to us for fifty grand, and then said one point one million, and we eventually agreed four seventy five, but that meant I knew I needed to take one classroom off to be able to afford yeah. the building. But but the the timeline of doing all of that meant that um we we almost lost the investment. There was a a a, fi a final date that we had to have things legally agreed by, which was the 31st of March, 2010. Who's doing all this then? Just you or have you got... No, you got by this stage, you've got lawyers involved. Oh, okay. So um, by 2010, uh, I'd brought in a, a, direct, a finance manager, director of finance yeah. into Burtonshaw, who's a, a chartered accountant. Um, so I'd, I'd managed to change the financial position enough to be able to afford to employ another senior member of staff. But for the first... No, it was 2009, 2010. Did you see yourself as a businessman back then? No, I still saw myself as a social worker. I still saw myself as somebody who wanted to have a positive impact on the yeah. lives of, of children. Um, but in, I knew, any social worker will say this, it's, it's a standing joke. Social workers, we don't do numbers. Yeah. So I thought, I can't write and I can't do numbers either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I need somebody to come in and do the numbers. Um, but it changed the financial position enough to be able to afford a senior manager at this point. So for those first four years, it was just me and all the frontline staff. I, I didn't have a management team. It literally was just me, no management team at all. Um, but by 2010, I was able to appoint a finance director. And that, that was actually sort of essential to be able to manage this kind of investment as well. You know, I, I wouldn't have known how to produce like reports and stuff on how that money was being managed. Yeah. I wouldn't have had a first clue how to do that. Um, but the, the, the deadline was 5 p.m. on the 31st of March, 2010. But because of the issues with the, the sale or the purchase of the land, from our perspective, it, it had kind of drifted. So on the 31st of March, everything hadn't been signed off. Um, and the, the deadline was 5 o'clock. And at 5 past 5, I made a phone call to our lawyer to say hasn't happened um we haven't got the agreement whole thing's fallen through and while i was on the phone with the lawyer to say it had all fallen through my finance director came running into my room it's just come through it's just come through it's just come through so although five o'clock was the deadline a couple of minutes after five it it came through so that was the green light to start the construction of what became burtonshaw school in bolton in bromley cross the new building and on that site, we've also got a hydrotherapy center and the head office for the organization. Yeah, it's amazing. And that um, was completed in June 2012. And in June 2012, everything about Burtonshaw changed. We had a, a state-of-the-art building to deliver a quality service that could accommodate up to 50 children. That, that was what it was designed to accommodate at the time. Um, just so you know, there's 60 children in it now. So it was designed for 50, but there's 60 in it. But that's because we've converted uh, cupboards into classrooms and we've converted um, storage spaces into offices. Just 
a building that's only seven years old it was supposed to last at least 25 it's amazing mate I love the place just, just I mean you've been yeah, you've yeah, seen it's it amazing, um, and you've seen how many children yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we um, yeah. get into well, like that building said, if that wasn't there what would happen to these kids they probably wouldn't have a service to be honest um, and the impact of that is that some of them would, would end up with mental health issues yeah. at a young age. Some of them, it would lead to their families disintegrating and falling apart, their families needing mental health services. So because that, that service is there and we're trans transforming their lives, we're also transforming their families' lives. So you know, my, my vision was back then was 20, but I've just told you in, in the school in Bolton, we're now um, supporting 60 children and their families. So that's what, three times more than the original um, vision, but that's not all that the Burton Show does. But yeah, that was the the kind of turning point, the state of the art building. Um, and by then, I'd started to build relationships with various local authorities. Don't don't forget, I came from a local authority background, yeah. so I was able to talk to local authorities in in their speak. Yeah, yeah. You know the language that they used, and which is a big thing. <laughs> if you can talk to people the way they understand, yeah. you know, I'll be want, yeah, 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 yeah. You just it's kind of like mirroring their behavior mirroring their yeah, language yeah. in a way but because i'd been a senior manager in a local authority before i took that step out i was able to convince them that it was going to be a quality service and i did know what i was doing i didn't really but i was able to convince them that i did yeah. um and by continually talking to them more local authorities started to talk about placing children in the school but when the school opened in September 2012, I'd opened three children's homes in, in the community. Those children's homes supported nine, nine, maybe ten children. I can't remember back then, but nine or ten at most. But when the school opened in, in 2012, it supported 12 children. There were only 12 children on the roll. And we had to think about how to increase the income fairly rapidly because don't forget, I'd just taken on 8 million of loan investment that I needed to repay. Um, but since 2012, Burton Shaw has now grown by 400% in, in those six, seven years. Any business growing 400% is phenomenal. Wow. But from an organization that was making a loss in my first year of 240,000 to one that's now making a healthy profit, which doesn't go to shareholders. It's what I call profit for purpose. It's reinvested back into the business to support even more um, children and young people. But that 2012 date was the turning point. Since then, we've grown. We've moved into supporting young adults. We've opened a college here in Bolton. We've opened care services for young adults. We've increased the number of children's homes. There's now eight. Um, we run a a community cafe on Crompton Way. And on that same site, we have an accessible gym. We have a small animal small holding, a day service for young adults. Um, and then more recently, we've expanded across the Northwest. Um, in 2018, we opened a similar, but a, an even more um, improved version of a school. So we took all of the learning from developing the we were involved in the design of, of the, the school in Bolton and taking all of our learning from that we were able to work with the design team in Liverpool and that was a joint venture with Liverpool City Council so it's the first um, joint venture of its kind in the UK um, so Burton Shaw didn't have to look for capital finance we didn't have to put money in uh, no money down it's one of those no money down deals um, 
Liverpool City Council put all the money into it, but we used our expertise and our knowledge of what works for children with learning disability and autism to create an even better school environment. And that school opened in um, September 2018. Uh, on day one, there were 22, 23 children on the roll. By the end of the first year, that had gone up to 35. September this year, September 19, we started with 52 or 53 children. On the school roll, as we talk today, there are 71 children. When we opened the school in September 2018, we registered it with the Department for Education for 50 children. We didn't think we'd get anywhere close to 50 children until about four or five years. Last year in May, we had to go back to the Department for Education and ask them to increase the registered number. The maximum capacity in the building was 80, so we thought, well, to hell with it, we'll just ask for the 80. We're now on 70, 71 children as we speak. Wow. There, are, there are children waiting to come in. We're trying to recruit more staff to allow that. So we know that roughly between the winter break and the spring break, or some people would say Christmas and Easter, we know that that school will be full. But when we started the, that partnership with Liverpool City Council, they were talking about secondary school age boys as their priority, and they said that that would be the the kind of children that would be placed in the school. It's not. It's mostly primary school age children. It's a mixture of boys and girls, but the majority of them are six or seven or eight years old. And that school is going to be at capacity before it gets to the end of its second year. Now, that's good for those children who can now get a service in their home city. But the downside is that because they're so young, none of them will be leaving for the next 10 or 12 years. So by next summer, we will have no capacity to offer any more children a service in Liverpool, and yet we've only just opened. And that was supposed to be a service that would not get full for five or six years. So we're already looking for either um, Liverpool, to, Liverpool City Council to look at another joint venture with us, or investors who are willing to look at helping us to develop another school or a college in Liverpool. And in fact, our vision, so you asked me what the vision was, it was yeah. to transform the lives of 20 children. The vision now is to transform the lives of every child in the UK who's got learning disability or autism. I want Burton Shaw to have a school in every local authority area. I want us to have children's homes in every local authority area. I want us to be absolutely at the forefront of a movement that recognizes that children with learning disability and autism do not always get the services that they need to thrive and that when they do get those services, their lives are completely transformed, their families' lives are completely transformed. I want Burnshaw to be at the forefront of that. I want this to become a national organization, not because I want this to be the biggest organization or, or whatever, the biggest company in the UK, but because I know by doing that, we will transform more lives. That's now the vision. Your goal's never changed, does it? It's just helping people out. Still about helping people, but I think I had some limiting beliefs in the past. Yeah. And I thought I could only help this many. And was or... that limiting beliefs in yourself that you thought that? Yeah. But now you've kind of become a bit more proud of yourself and you know what you're capable of, that you're just like, listen, there's actually nothing that can stop you. I, I'm not proud of myself. I think I, I would argue that I've never been proud of anything. I'm absolutely delighted that Burton Shaw has grown the way it's grown. Yeah. 
I'm privileged to be part of it and actually being part of it enriches my life. Yeah. Um, I, would, I wouldn't say I'm proud because that seems too boastful and I'm just the bolshy little yeah. Bel- Belfast boy that was in the right place at the right time and didn't take no for an answer and sees failure as a learning experience. So I've kept pushing and pushing and pushing. What has changed though, and I know that I'm not stupid, and I know that I can deliver quality services which are cost-effective for local authorities. I've proven to local authorities that I can save them money if they work with us. I've proven to um, local authorities and to families that we can transform the lives of children with learning disability and autism, that they can achieve more than anyone ever thought possible by accessing our services. Let me let me ask you this question, David, which is a bit of a left field one. But but by doing all these things for other people, have you have, have you actually ever stopped back and just have you actually dealt with what went on with you, and actually kind of look? Have you been to see a counsellor? Have you been to you know what I mean? Because it's like there's only so much that you can kind of it, it's great helping all people. It needs to be more of it. But have you ever thought to yourself, look, I need to kind of think about. You know, because you because you need to heal. Yeah. And have you healed? I don't I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, when I was younger, I didn't didn't have any support, so you know it was about what I could manage myself. Um, but one of the decisions that I made at sixteen, seventeen, when I had that turning point, you know, when that when that youth worker said to me, "Yeah, you've had a shit time. What are you going to do about it?" One of the things I knew was that I needed to deal with some of the things that happened to me. So although you know it took me 10 years to get into social care and then social work, during that 10 years, I accessed counseling. I started thinking about mindfulness. I, I kind of did a bit of yoga and I did a med- bit of meditation. Um, and actually when, when I started training as a to, to become a qualified social worker by that stage, and actually by the time I got into social care, I thought I was healed. I thought that um, all of my experience from childhood were absolutely the past. I thought then that, you know, it was history. Mm. Um, I kind of didn't allow any space in my mind to think, does it still have an impact on me? Other than a positive one as a driving force to to do what I want to do and help others. Um, And for a long time, I actually thought that was the case. Um... Um, and I think the reason behind that was that, you know, my career was going well and I got to go to university and yeah. then I realized that I actually was capable of learning and and I've actually discovered that not only am I not stupid, I'm highly academic. Um, I'm probably more average than, more intelligent than, than yeah, yeah, average yeah, people. You know, the, the yeah. kind of the other end of the scale. Then a lot more intelligent than me. Don't, you? <laughs> don't me. think so. <laughs> um, but you know, thinking that as a child of being told I was stupid to you yeah. know, now knowing that I can I can do ac- academic stuff at, at the highest level. Um, say you've all, you've also got this dark thing that's happened to you. Yeah, and you? and I think you know I kind of thought things were going really really well. Um, my career was going well. I took over Burton Shaw. It was difficult to start with. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I'd, uh, other things in my life. By, by this stage, I'd, I was in a relationship. Um, so everything seemed to be going really, really well. So it was almost as if the 
the the early experiences weren't having any impact at all and it it didn't feel as if they were it didn't feel as if they were at all so i felt that i developed like emotional resilience and a real strength i suppose if, if you meet me most people would say this about me i'm a very strong yeah, character yeah, yeah. um so i would i would say i'm like emotionally strong and resilient and but i would also say i've got integrity and i've got good va- set of values and good good principles um but I, you know i thought i was doing really well um but in um september 2016 i had a, a personal event that really rocked my world again um and then, don't forget this is um you know this is a couple of years after the burton shaw's flagship had opened in um bromley cross and by this stage we were well into the project with liverpool and it was year four of of um burton shaw being profit making if you like um but at, at that point in september 16 i've been in a relationship for 22 years and that relationship ended suddenly and that that decision wasn't mine i didn't see it coming and it absolutely shook me to the core and i didn't deal with it very well um it sent me spiraling back into a dark place um somewhere that i never thought i would go again um i started uh drinking excessively again so most of my adult life i've got an irish accent for god's sake i'm i'm gonna be a drinker i'm i'm the really but through most of my adult life i've i've always liked to drink but it's always been you know managed if you like it's yeah. not it's never been over the top i never had a drink problem i wouldn't say it was excessive but after um, my relationship ended, it it did get very excessive again and spiral down, and that had a a major impact on my sense of well being and mental health, um, and I started to go back into that um, dark place of feeling like helpless again. Yeah, it, it felt like a self destructive downward spiral. Yeah. Um, that you're not worthy again, and yeah, and and really they brought all of those memories back. Yeah. You know. It must be my fault. Yeah. Um, I'm not worthy. Uh, you know, if somebody's ended a relationship with me, it must be me. It's my fault. I've done something wrong or yeah. not done the right things. Um, but in you, it was spiraling down. I was trying to work out what the hell do I do? How, how do I get some support here? Um, so from from September um, 2016, really spiraling down. And I kind of thought, I'm going to reach out to my brothers and sisters and some of my close friends. And maybe this was a mistake, but when I reached out, I told them I was feeling pretty crap and, you know, drinking a lot. And I also told them that I was coming home from work. You know, to the outside world, I was still a successful businessman, but I was coming home from work and was locking the door and closing the curtains and getting the drink out um, and just waiting for the next morning and hoping I could make it back into work the next day and function. Um just trying to get through again, really. Um, but yeah, Burton Show was still being successful, yeah. still growing, still developing. But when I was reaching out, um, I wasn't getting the support that I thought I was thought I would get, and I kind of was getting. I felt I was getting sort of pushed away, um, and that that kind of sensation of not being listened to and being pushed away got worse, um, and that resulted. So so over about a year, that resulted in that downward spiral kind of gathering pace um i'm almost embarrassed to to say this but in october 2017 i tried to take my own life and that's something that anyone who knew me at the time would not have thought possible because 
I was running a, a multi-million pound successful organization. I was helping, by this stage, it got into helping other businesses develop um, their, their businesses as well, other businessmen and businesswomen. So to the outside, it was really successful. But what was going on in my head was completely messed up. Um, I don't remember doing this, but I put something on Facebook on the night that I took an overdose. Um, and somebody worked out that it was like serious. Now, my expectation was I was never going to wake up. Um, and I'm not somebody that's used to failure. Yeah. So this is a double-edged sword. I woke up in hospital. So that the person who saw that post, and I don't remember doing the post. I was too out of it. Um, but somebody saw the post, called the police. The police broke into my house. I was taken to hospital. I woke up in hospital, and my first thought was, shit, there is an afterlife. What am I going to do now? Where am I? <laughs> that was the first thought. Really? The second thought was, shit, I failed. I'm not used to failure. Um, and, I, you know, that, that kind of yeah, failure, yeah, yeah. when I set out to do something yeah. like that, I, you know, I, I, I just didn't expect not not, not to see it through. You, you saw the post? Did, did you? No idea. Really? Still to this day, I don't know. Um, but I'm glad that they did. <clears throat> That was at the point where um, I really needed to, to to make some more difficult decisions. So that was another cathartic moment or epiphany or turning point or whatever you want to call it. Up, so um, at that point, I made a decision that I was going to change my circle completely. So I actually contacted friends and family had been reaching out to and said to them, because you've not been helpful and not supportive, you're out of my circle. Oh, God, dude, so, I, I love that, mate. I literally reduced my circle to two people. Who were the two people? Two friends, Mark and Debbie. Um, and someone that you know quite well, who, yeah. in, in a kind of different way, I know him, Ryan, Ryan Armitage. Um, they, so the, Mark and Debbie were the only two friends that kept him alive, and Ryan was... I see Ryan as a really how, good friend, but we have a different... How we're having this conversation the day, how do you judge to have somebody in your life? How do you judge that they're right? Um, in the past, the way I used to look at it was that I was lucky if somebody allowed me in their life. Yeah. So I thought that like that was... If somebody allowed me in or yeah. had any connection with me, yeah. that it, I was the lucky one. Whereas now, the way I think about it is... I don't want people in my life if they're not positive. I want people that I can support, but who support me. I want people that I can build up, but who build me up. I want yeah. people who recognize my success, but I can recognize their success. I want it to be a positive. My tribe has to be positive. Now, yeah. if it's not positive, they can fuck off. Yeah, yeah, I'm all um, And do you know what? The number of people that I've, I've cut out and felt good about it, and and the positive difference that that's made in in the last couple of years is is absolutely incredible. Brave move that though, isn't it? Again, at the time it didn't feel brave. It just felt like it's the way to survive. Yeah. I'd got to the point of thinking, Christ, if I was if I was prepared to take my own life because yeah. I felt so shit, I've got to do something to feel better. And that was the first decision, um, changing my circle. Um, so two friends, Mark and Debbie and Ryan Armitage, were the only people I. I allowed in, that's all. And then I started to um, 
connect with somebody on social media. Um, it wasn't you, by the way. This, this was before I started to connect with you on social media. Another guy called um, Simon. And I've told Simon all of this um, since, but he didn't know at the time. I don't know how I first came across him. I think I was looking for self-help stuff and yeah. mean, meaningful stuff and yeah. maybe mindfulness stuff, things that I could use to kind of help me get through the situation that I was in. Because I was spending an awful lot of time on my own and, you know, I'd cut out all these people from yeah. my life. So it was yeah. kind of just me, really. I was going to work. I was still functioning at work and nobody at work knew what was going on. Um, and, you know, I, I need to say, and I need to really stress this, I'm I'm delighted. I'm really pleased that, you know, I failed because my life now is better than it's ever been. Yeah. At any point in my life, it's better now. What, what um, struck me about what you said before there, David, is the fact that you... More than anybody understands what loneliness is. For you, for you to get rid of all these people, what must be going through your yeah. head is, I'm going to be lonely again. I knew I was going to be lonely, but I I knew that I wanted to do that, and that was preferable. Yeah. To being with, to having people in my life who were yeah. not supportive, pulling me down, and yeah. not being helpful. Um, and I knew I needed to create a new circle. So as there's only those three people that I've mentioned kind of still in my orbit, if, or if you call it that. And then I started to connect with this guy, Simon, um, on social media. Um, I didn't know at the time he lives three miles away from me. Get that. Really? I, th- I thought he lived in Australia or something. Right. I had no idea where he was based, really. That's the power of social media, isn't yeah. it? You know, no, you just don't know where people are and you can yeah. connect with people that are really close. Um, so I started to stalk him. You know, one of those people that reads the post, doesn't react. Um, but I was getting a lot from the stuff he was putting out. And in many ways, I think it saved my life. It it kind of took me from, you know, just coming out of hospital thinking, am I going to do this again? It got me from that point to thinking, absolutely not. I'm never going to do that again. I know I'm never going to do that again, but there's other things I need to sort out. Um, and Simon had no idea. I was looking at his post. He had no idea who I was or anything else. Then I started to gradually like, and then I started to comment, and then we started to um, like chat on social media. And then randomly in October 2018, he, um, he invited me to go to this business event in London. I'd never, I've never met the guy before at this point, mm. um, but I felt we'd created a bond on social media, and he'd really helped me through a very difficult patch. He invited me to go to this this event in London. I think I don't even know what it's about. Um, he said it's the Gary V event. Now, some people listening to this podcast might know who Gary V is, Gary Vaynerchuk. I'd never heard of him. Um, but Simon invited me to go. He said, I'm, I'm trying to get a group of us. I've got 16 tickets. I'm trying to bring a group together, 16 people. Um, I thought, do you know what? Why not? Why not go? I've no idea what it's about. Don't know who this Gary V is, but I want to meet Simon. I'll meet some other people. Let's see how it goes. Um, those three days were, were another epiphany. I met Simon. Actually, we were on the same train. We didn't, because I, did, I still didn't know at this stage where he lived, but we were on the same train from Preston to London. Um, and he was walking up, up the carriage. I'm looking at him thinking, I'm sure that's the guy I talked to on, on social media. And I got I got my phone out as I was walking up the carriage. I thought, fucking is he? I'm looking at him thinking... That's random, that. Seriously. And as he came towards me, he went, Simon? Um, and he pointed at me and he 
David. Um, and he just came over and he, he picked me up and gave me a big bear hug. And from that moment to now, we have bonded. And we're very different people. I mean, there's like more than 20 years yeah. difference in age. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a very different person. And one of the things about Simon is he was a, a very, very high profile GB gymnast in a, in a previous life. Um, uh, I didn't know anything about that either at the time. But we just bonded. There was there was just something that, that we bonded. And the the people that I met and he introduced me to at that event in London, a group of them I bonded with as well. And, and we're still in contact. And that became the start of a really new, healthy, positive circle. And, um, and that actually started to make me think about the success it had at Burtonshaw. And yes, Burnshaw is continuing to grow, and it's at the point now where it can continue to do that and can so continue to help. Are you your personal branding? Yeah, point? it's the personal brand now. Um, and I started to think about, I've achieved all that success. It's a business, but it's helping lots of disabled children. And then I started to think, actually, what I, what I want to do now is help other business people. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the, the past year, I've been growing my own circle again and growing my own personal brand. And I've uh, opened a new business called Break, Breakthrough Success. Mm-hmm. And I want that to be about all the things that I've had to deal with. So, you know, I mentioned earlier about mindset. Yeah. I want to help other business owners deal with whatever uh, mental or emotional issues they might be dealing with. Let's face it, given what I've been telling you today, there's not much I haven't dealt with. Yeah. And there's not a lot that people are going to be able to say to me that will either surprise me or shock Shocked me yeah. or that I can't say yeah. Have you thought about this? Have you tried mm-hmm. that? So I want to help business owners with which their is the, mindset. Which is a big thing, mate, because it's like, you know, when it comes to people starting up doing businesses and the fear of it, and, you know, one of the biggest things is like promoting your business, you have to get on video, and it's the, the self-esteem to do videos and the confidence to, you know, there's mindset's one of the one of the biggest things, and I see a lot of small businesses fail because they don't get that bit right. Yeah. A lot of businesses have got a good product or a good service, yeah. but the mindset of the business owner yeah. isn't right. So one of one of the things that I think about, um, one of the things I've been doing this, this past year, is thinking about fix the person, fix the business, mm-hmm. or fix the mind, fix mind. the business. Yeah. So I've been working with business owners now over the past year, helping them with emotional issues, psychological issues, mindset issues, yeah, like that, mate. and then looking at how that can impact on their business. Mm. And it's no different from my vision in Burton Show to transform the lives of people. It's still about people, yeah, yeah. but with Burton Shows, about transforming the lives of disabled children and their yeah. families. With Breakthrough Success, it's about transforming the lives of business owners and therefore transforming their businesses, which in turn will transform the, the, lives, the, yeah. the lives of their lives, yeah, their families' yeah. lives, their employees' lives. So it's still about people. It's still about transforming yeah. lives, but it's a different kind of way of doing it. Yeah. Um, and when I went to that event in London, I just thought, I'd never been at that kind of business event before because I've always worked in the yeah. like the social care or the education space or the disability space. So it's always been more kind of social care orientated rather than business orientated. Even though Burnshaw is a multi-million pound business, I've never really gone into business events and business networking. Went to that one and thought, bloody hell, this is brilliant. I absolutely love it. I'm having a great time. Um, and... I came away from that thinking I want to do a bit more of this, but one of the people that I heard speak at that event is a guy called Justin James, um, and I wanted more of that. I resonated with everything he said from mm. the moment he started speaking, 
And I thought, I, I need to connect with this guy. I need to find a way to speak to him. Um, I was able to do that. I'm now part of Justin James's academy and inner circle. In fact, a few weeks ago, he invited me to speak with him at a business event in Amsterdam. Um, I don't speak fluent Dutch, but I managed to speak some Dutch to them, which was a, a great icebreaker. Yeah, yeah. You know, this this business event was being held in English, but yeah. my first words were in Dutch, which was a, a real icebreaker for, for that um, that group of people, all these business people. Um, but I got to tell my story and my story about Burnshaw, my story about breakthrough success and some of the things I've had to, to go through. So he's now um, my mentor, my main mentor, my business mentor. And through him, I've been able to expand my business networks. I've had opportunities to speak on stages that I never expected to get, network with other really high-profile business people throughout the UK. Um, and I'm now in a position where I want to take forward that side of my mm. business life, breakthrough success side. Um, now, I, let me just... This, the spiral out of control bit, and then you got rid of all them people around you. Yeah. What else did you do to actually... Did you do anything else? Yeah. Because obviously, that's dark as a motherfucker, that, mate. Yeah. Yeah. What um, else do you do to heal yourself? Um, counseling? I, I accessed some more counseling, but a lot of what I was doing at that point was... That's how I connected with Simon, really. I was looking for self-help help techniques. Simon runs an organization called the Nourish Group. They do a lot of self-help stuff. They do retreats, they, a lot of mindfulness stuff. Yeah. He does a lot of physical stuff as well. He does these like um, Muay Thai retreats and stuff. But I'm not going to one of those. He'd kill me. <laughs> um, I'm far too... I did Muay Thai when I was younger, yeah. but yeah, I've tried to do it now. I'd get killed. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, but what I, what I started to do was the mindfulness stuff. And then I, I started to think about um, reducing the alcohol. Um, I didn't take it as far at that stage as trying to say I'm going to stop it because I knew I couldn't. I was relying on it as a bit of a crutch too much. But I knew I needed to get back into exercise and try to get fitter again since the the relationship ended. Um, and I'd been drinking really heavily. I'd not been eating well either. Um, yeah. I'd been eating takeaways and processed food. I'd put on a lot of weight. Yeah. Um, so I knew I needed to start eating healthy. I knew I needed to started looking after my physical health better as well as my mental health, get more fresh air. I mean, I'd been basically coming home and locking myself in the house. So a couple of things that I thought about were get a dog. Um, that would get me so out got more. Two so I got two instead <laughs> to make sure that I definitely went out. Um, so yeah, earlier on this year, I, I spent a couple of months choosing the right kind of breed and everything else. And no, don't forget, I'm, I'm running two businesses. I'm a busy person. I'm away a lot. I speak elsewhere. I'm events in London. I didn't want to get dogs and not be able to look after them or, or have yeah. somebody take care of them when I'm not around. So I did a lot of research around different breeds, what would be suitable for me, but also who could look after them for me. And I've got an absolutely fabulous dog sitter that can walk them or look after them during mm. the day or they can stay at her house if I'm away. Um, but yeah, in, in April of this year, I got two French bulldogs, Bosco and Fergus. Um, I don't walk a lot with them during the week, but I try to get out and get some fresh air with them. Um, but at the weekends, we we on average do about 50 kilometers now over so Saturday, that's Sunday. That's all part of your healing process. I mean, because that, that's one of mine. It's just like walking and getting out in the mountains and stuff is my... Yeah, absolutely. I've always loved um, walking in the mountains. When I was in my relationship, that was one of our things, travel. But when we wherever we traveled, whether it was mm. in the UK or elsewhere, walking in the hills and the mountains... Mm. Um, or by the by the shore. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. I grew up by the shore, 
So that was something I always wanted to do. <clears throat> I you know, walk by the shore and coastlines. Mm. Um, so yeah, getting out and getting more fresh air and doing more walking. But I, I knew that if I had do- a dog, it would force me to do that. But having two, obviously, gets me out quite a bit. And although they're fairly small, they're only nine months old now, um, you know, there's days we can do 20, 25 kilometers. And that's always either at a fast walk pace or jogging. And I've now got them doing little sprints. So getting them out has got me out. Getting so you've them. put all these tiny little bit of things in place from your eating to cutting down on alcohol to a yeah. thing. Well, Do you... Because obviously, like, like, I love how honest you are, mate. And just, you know, that's one of the things, like, I just, like, I can hold my hands up and just say how amazing it is. Because um, not everybody can be like this. How do you deal with what happened to you when you were little now then? How does, does how does that affect your life right now? It doesn't anymore. I feel completely healed. It almost feels as if in... yeah, As, as an adult when I was in a relationship and everything felt rosy, yeah. I thought I was healed then. But in the in the past year, I feel as if I'm a new person. Life is better than it ever was, and you look I, good, mate. You I, look really good. Your skin looks really good. You, you like smile a lot more you. than I'd last time I seen you. Well, the interesting thing is, a lot of people have told me about um, my skin looking good and stuff, yeah. and I don't, you know, I'm a bloke, so it's not. <laughs> I don't have a skin regime or anything. But um, what it did do, as well as thinking about eating more healthily, was. Uh, you know, the dogs and everything with exercise. But then I started to think, I'm going, I'm going to have to cook food. I'm going to have to stop eating processed food. And then I took that a step further. So in September, no, August. So August. got a degree in nutrition now. No, no, no. But I started working with somebody who does. Really? So in, in August, I started talking to a nutritionist who's also a homeopath. Um, and I started asking, what can I do to cut down on some of the meds I'm on? What can I do to yeah. like detox a little bit? What can I do to, you know, make things overall healthier? Mm. Um, so in August, I started this, I think it's called Purify, um, but I started a detox program. So I started cutting out uh, alcohol completely um, for a while. So I, I had three months without any alcohol. So now I'm I'm still like drinking, but yeah, yeah, yeah. only occasionally and not as much as You're not drinking to forget, to. you're drinking because it's a... I'm drinking because taste. I want to drink yeah, and yeah, enjoy yeah. it and enjoy yeah. the party or enjoy the occasion, not trying to block anything out. So... I'm not using it as a crutch the way I was in the past. So it's a healthier relationship with alcohol. I then started to cut out processed food and sugars. And then in September, I went on a detox, which um, included um, like various supplements, but also this uh, like a powder stuff that you mix with water yeah. and it cleanses your system. I mean, to be honest, it, it's not pleasant. It yeah, looks yeah, and yeah, smells yeah, yeah, like yeah. green pond water. But it really does work. Mm. It just cleanses your whole system. So, so you look at your total self like holistically now, and you'd like <coughs> you really look after every aspect from your spiritual. Because I mean, should we talk about the ayahuasca trip? The what? The ayahuasca trip. What's that then? When, when didn't you go to Peru and have the ayahuasca, the DMT? I went to oh yeah 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 the the, yeah, yeah. the cocoa leaves and stuff. You yeah 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 yeah. Oh yeah yeah, I was in Peru. Um, I was in Peru. That was that was part of me thinking about the um, wellness and doing mm. things that I wanted to do. So I wanted to go to Machu Picchu and I wanted yeah. to climb Machu Picchu. But yeah, um, I had the, the the experience that you know, the leaves maybe yeah, had yeah. too many of the leaves. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um, I did the, the Machu Picchu trek. Uh, yeah. Got to the so that was three or four days, um, and then I did um, the you can. There's an optional thing that's the 
called Machu Picchu Mountain Climb. Yeah. I did that the next day. And I didn't, at that stage, I, I hadn't lost as much weight as I have now. And I wasn't, you know, doing as much activity as I am now. So, mm. I mean, this, this is only July this year. But I just wasn't as fit. But yeah. I, I really wanted to do it. Um, but in the group that I was with, there were two American guys, re- really fit guys, but lovely guys that tuned into the fact that I was struggling a bit. And they went at my pace. They they encouraged me the whole way and they helped me get to the top of the mountain. Um, so I did summit Machu Picchu Mountain the day after it got to Machu Picchu City. Then the day after that, we thought, okay, we'll do the Peru thing. And we just... I was well jealous. I've seen your pictures on Instagram. We're just like, oh, you motherfucker. I know. I can't believe that. Yeah, you can. Actually, the, the, the Machu Picchu bit was, I thought, best day of my life. Then the yeah. following day doing the, the mountain, thought, no, this is the best day of my life. And then a couple of days later, I went into, I can't remember how to pronounce it, some bloody desert in yeah, the yeah, south yeah. of Peru. I'm, no, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce <laughs> it. I just, it. It's a big, long name. Um but yeah, I was in this desert that just went on for miles and miles and miles. I've never been in the center of a desert. You can't see anything but sand. Um, and it just felt completely isolated. And we were able to watch the, um, the the sun go down over one horizon as the moon came up over the other. How special, man. I, I thought, fucking hell, what? You know, look this way, it's the sun. Look that way, it's the moon. And 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 yet there was, I mean, we'd been trekking through the desert Um and there's loads of chit-chat and all the rest of it. But then when we sat down to watch the, the sunset and the moon come up, it was kind of like an, an otherworldly experience. Yeah. Um, it it's just went... a moment you'll never forget. Totally quiet. Everybody yeah. just sat in silence. And yeah. this beautiful, natural phenomenon. I, we were all kind of like a bit tearful, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah but in between, in between the desert and... The mountain so the few days in between we'd we'd gone off into this village and we'd yeah we'd we'd done the traditional Peru thing with a couple of shamans and stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah so what was that experience like um at the time all i remember was feeling euphoric yeah um and everything just seemed like bigger yeah better yeah. and brighter and yeah. um kind of felt like being back on cocaine but yeah. <laughs> but in a good way yeah yeah um um, before I finish the podcast, right, um, the question I want to ask as well is how you met Ryan and how you came to a decision of having him as the chairman of Burntshaw, which just seemed, at the minute, seems ridiculous to me, <laughs> just because, like, we're, we're balloon all the time. But then I just see this other side to him that just, like, totally just, like, <clears throat> blows my mind, just like you, and you yeah. tell me how you... And I'm just like... Eh? Yeah, I know. It's just, and I'll be honest, I'll put my hands on the table and I said, there is absolutely no way I could do what you've done or what Ryan's done. I just... if You can't really say that because if you're not in that position, you don't know what you would do. Yeah. If you'd been in my position as a seven-year-old or my position as a 12-year-old. Yeah. But I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, no, I don't, honestly, David, I think I can, I can think I can actually say, no, I couldn't. I'll be honest with you. My mind just doesn't work like that. It, yeah. it just doesn't. Um, I've got my path has been set out for me, and I just know full well that that wouldn't. I, it wouldn't have. I. I mean, I can't really respond to that. And you know, I. I was in that position, not of my choice. Yeah. But thankfully, I was able to deal with it, and I've yeah. been able to deal with quite a few difficult things throughout my life. But yeah, going back to your question, the guy that is 
the maverick that is my friend Ryan. Um, actually, we met on social media. Did you? We did. Um, I think it was when I first started using Twitter or Instagram. I can't remember which one. Now, I'm, I'm of an age where when I was sort of younger, computers weren't around. I mean, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have the internet. So I'm kind of a bit of a technophobe in, in some ways. So it was my first forays into um, using whatever it was, Instagram or Twitter, for a Burton shot at the time. Um, and I was just testing out, like, what kind of things can you say? And I didn't even know how to attach a bloody photograph, you know, and put a post yeah. out. So it was very sort of simplistic stuff. But anyway, Ryan was... Um, Pestering you. Um, no, he, he didn't pester me, to be fair. He, um, he reached out at one point, and I think at that stage he was running a, a company called... Um, no, I think it was even before that. It was oh, when he was it? doing education appointments. Right, right. Um, so what he saw from my post was like we had a school, Burtonshaw School. So he reached out to say, you know, do you need any teachers or teaching assistants? I mean, we call them learn support assistants, but that was that was his question. And I thought, yeah, this is some white boy here. He's oh, trying yeah. to, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's my first impression of him. Yeah, some yeah. white boy. Um, he sent me a couple more messages. And I said, where are you based anyway? It turned out at the time his office was in, in Leyland. Yeah. I live in Farrington Moss, which is what, two minutes drive yeah, outside yeah. Leyland. I thought, might as well. Might as well just go and meet this idiot. Yeah. See, see what I think. Um, so I went to his offices in Leyland. And I thought, yeah, he kind of knows what he's doing. Um, but my um, thinking at the time, I mean, this, this has gone back. What did you think when you first met him? Because he's boy. totally opposite yeah. to you, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's a very different character to me on the surface. Yeah, yeah. Definitely on the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the um, trick, yeah, yeah. But I think that even when I first met him, although that was a business meeting, um, there was something about the core of what is Ryan that I felt connected with what my core. Um, there was just something, despite different people and different ages and from different places and different backgrounds i felt that there was something about the essence of what what is us that connected um didn't tell him that at the time i was still giving a bloody hard time in that business meeting uh, i thought he doesn't really know what he's doing he's trying to sell me a service and he doesn't really know what it is he's he's selling me or um but it, but i said look tell you what <coughs> let me test you put through some cvs for teachers or teaching assistants I'll see what the quality is. If I think they're good enough CVs, I'll see the people. If the people are good enough, I'll come back to you and talk about price. But I'm not taking anybody on unless you're going to do a good deal. So if you want me to take that approach, that's fine. So that was kind of more or less the way we looked at it. Um, and I gave him a list of criteria. And I said, if you send any CVs through that don't meet this criteria, I'm not even going to speak to you. I'm not going to do business with you. He sent three CVs and every single one of them met the criteria, which to be honest, surprised me. <laughs> I wasn't expecting him to be able to meet the criteria, but he did. I thought, okay, he's done that. Let, let me meet these people. Because we always do like a um, an interview, even for agency staff. So, And I, I, I didn't want anyone else in the, or the business to be involved in that. I, I wanted to do it because I wanted to suss out yeah. these people that he was going to put forward. And most of the people that came in that first batch were appointable. They weren't all like, yeah, 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 you know, top notch or whatever. They're, they weren't going to set the world on fire, but you know, there were people that 
if I'd interviewed them through a standard recruitment process, people. decent people that I could have appointed. I thought, okay, he might actually be able to do something for me here. But what I was looking for was, you know, this, this was kind of at the start of our growth period. I was looking for a cost-effective way to bring people into the business and to recruit staff. It takes time and energy and money to, to, to recruit. Um, so I was looking for a cost-effective sort of solution. Went back to Ryan then said, look, you know, CVs you put put through were good. Met those people, they're appointable. Now we've got to talk money. And then he started talking about, you know, the, the, the unit price per hour or per day or whatever it was he said at the time. I went, nah, not doing that. So I said to him what I could afford. And I said, look, I won't fall out with you, but this is my budget. If you can provide me with staff for that budget, we can do business. What I can say is that although that's the maximum I can pay, I know we're about to hit a growth phase and I know that we can do business for years and I know that you can make a lot of money out of this. So your return per unit or per person or per day or per hour, whatever way you want to look at it, might not be huge, but the volume will be there over time. Um, and do you know what he said to me? Cool. I need to talk to my mum. <laughs> <laughs> sold. I'm, I'm sold if he says that. And I thought, his mum? What's, what's his mum got to do with it? I had no idea. Everything. I had no idea at the time that it was a family business. I had no idea about their values or their ethos or anything yeah, yeah. else. And he just said, I need to talk to my mum. I thought, bloody hell. Businessman, he needs to talk to his mum? I just didn't get it at the time. So that really threw me. But at the same time, it was endearing. Endearing, though. Because... I mean, this has gone back, what, eight or nine years? He's, what, mid-30s now? So yeah. he's kind of mid-20s then. Um, and I kind of had a bit of a soft spot for him from the moment I met him. Yeah. I thought, he's a big guy, much bigger than me, yeah. but still came across to me yeah, as somebody yeah. that's quite young. Um, and I always have had this thing about trying to help young people, whether it's the young people within Burtonshaw, young people in my life, young business people. It's just, I've always wanted yeah. to try and help them in a way. So I kind of thought, if I can do business with him, I want to do it, but it has to be at the price I can afford. And obviously, I wasn't making a huge amount of money at that time. Um, so after that conversation, I think he, Ryan and Ross came to Burtonshaw, and they were having a conversation, and Ryan was trying to get the price up. And I was like, look, I'm not going to fall out with you, but I've told you what I can afford. It's entirely up to you. And Ryan looked across the table at Ross and said, what do you think? And Ross looked back at Ryan and said, it's up to you. <laughs> um, so he said let's let's do it so we signed our first contract and um that was with education appointments and then um we moved into a contract with 24 7 professional health and of course more recently that's that's now tesla so ryan and tesla have been provi providing staff for me at burtonshaw um across education care services across all of our services really probably for the last eight years so on a continuous did, basis. When did you decide to make him? So after he, we signed our first contract and he started um, putting staff forward, he and I started to um, yeah. obviously talk more. And the more I talked to him, the more I thought, there's more about him than he knows. There's more about him than he gives himself credit for. Mm. And I don't know if, how I feel about me saying this. I don't care, I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, he doesn't think he's very bright. 
because he doesn't have an education like mm-hmm. a university education. Yeah. But he's streetwise and he's lifewise. He's he's got he's got intelligence. But he thought because he hadn't got an education, he doesn't have intelligence. And that's how you could. That's why you can relate to it. And I got it. I really got it, and I got him, and I like him. And I like working with him. Yeah. And I thought, do you know what? He's he's really putting staff through, and he's not making as much money. He's put a lot of staff through to Burton Show, but he's not making as much money as if he was putting them through to another business. So he must he must have some kind of interest in what we do. So I just randomly said to him one day, "How do you feel about joining the board?" I said, oh, I haven't got the experience, um, don't know anything about it, um, wouldn't know what to do, don't like being in those kind of meetings. I said, so when are you joining? <laughs> there wasn't, you know, back to that, I don't take no kind of thing. And I just said to him, look, you'll learn as you go. And actually, being on the board at Burtonshaw, you might learn a lot that will help you deal with some of the businesses that you want to deal with and you want to grow your business by aligning yourself with. So I persuaded him to join the board. He had to go through a process. Like it was, it's not just my decision. So it's just like I say he's joining the board and that's it. There has to be a decision. Um, and of course, because he his company or we're providing staff, there's a conflict of interest that we've had to declare and it's it's on the conflict of interest register and it's declared a company's house and charity commission, all that kind of stuff. So we've had to manage all that as well. I think it was in 2014 that he joined the board as a trustee. Um, a trustee is basically a non-executive board member, so it's somebody that gives their time for free to sit on your board. Um, and 2014 and 20, I don't know why I did it to him, 2014 and 2015 were the two two worst years that Burnshaw has ever had in relation to the board. Our board was dysfunctional at the time. There what were do you some, mean by that? Um, How do you choose on the board? What you're supposed to do is have a recruitment process and then the rest of the board team make a, deci- a decision about who's appointable and who's not. What invariably happens is people like me, a chief executive, um, either recommends or doesn't somebody that is interested in being a board member. At Burtonshaw, I'm now effectively the decision maker. The board will agree with me or not agree with me. But if I recommend somebody, they, they generally... Um, a point that's not the way it should be but it's how we find it works best what happens if the people on the board don't like you as a person get rid of them so during 2014 and 15 that was the case we ended up with people on the board who i just didn't get on with but legally i run the company they don't and when there's issues with people who are on the board you have to try and work to try and resolve that and sort it out but these people were being deliberately difficult, um, deliberately obstructive. And then it got to the point where um, I had to raise a formal complaint about one of them because of his, the way he was behaving towards me. I then had, had to raise formal complaints with the Charity Commission and Companies House about the fact that these people were not um, using due diligence and following the codes of conduct for people on a board. That led to a, a big investigation um, behind the scenes. So Ryan joined the board when all this was happening. So he joined the board, I think. TLN Just as all this... Yeah, it kind of kicked off. It wasn't his fault. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he came out onto the board when this was all kind of going pear-shaped. Um, but because I trusted him 
and because I felt that he had a good heart and yeah. he's got the same ethics integrity yeah. values and because of core. that absolutely I think if you cut us down the middle yeah. you'd see the same things yeah, yeah. the same values same, same principles yeah. um, there'd be more of him obviously because yeah. he's so much bigger but I started talking to him about um, what's going on what was going on and what we might be able to do about it I then was able to put Ryan in touch with uh, a lawyer who was acting on behalf of the company who knew about some of the stuff and had been in contact with the charity commission and company's house. Um, Ryan and uh, I think it was one, maybe two other members of the board started speaking to this lawyer behind the, the scenes and developed a strategy to resolve the issue. But that strategy was to effectively remove all of the members toxic. of the board who, yeah, who were toxic. Um, I mean, there was one board meeting I remember. One of these particular people was literally screaming at me and telling me he could, that he didn't have to listen to anything I said and he could do whatever the fuck he liked. And one of my deputies at this stage, by this stage, had two senior members, of us, two, two deputies, they were both in the room. And one of them said, you cannot speak to the chief executive like that it's completely unacceptable and he told her to fuck off as well and we were thinking this is just not the behavior is he gone he's gone see you later pal uh, exactly um but we enjoyed how we were able to get rid of him of that was at the point where i said to ryan this this has to be pushed now it really has to be pushed Ryan actually came back to the building that night after everybody left he came back and said i i can't stand that any longer and this can't go on any longer so we really started to think about the strategy. It, it was bullying, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, some of them were bullying me, some of them were bullying my deputies. When they started bullying me, I thought, I, I can deal with this. When they started bullying my deputies, I thought, too far. Um, and when it was having an impact on them, I knew that that would have an impact on the business. I thought, I'm not, not putting up with this. I'll do whatever it takes to get rid of them. And actually at the time, I remember saying, I will get rid of them. And if I don't, it'll be over my dead body kind of thing. Um, so I was going to do anything it took. Uh, you know, I put, I put myself in a very vulnerable position in many ways, but I wasn't prepared to tolerate it. Um, so when when I had that conversation with Ryan and he was at the point of saying, I can't deal with this, this any longer either. They, they had the conversations with the lawyer behind the scene. They developed a strategy. The strategy was basically that they were going to call a, what's called an extraordinary meeting but it had to be timed in a certain way and what the lawyer's suggestion was that it was timed that the invitation for that meeting went out at five o'clock one minute to five actually on a friday and the meeting was called for 8 a.m on the monday so that no one could call another meeting in between and that way there was no opportunity for anybody else to do anything but that when the invitation went out it needed to say what the order of business was going to be and when it went out, um, it said that the first order of business was a proposal which had Ryan's name attached to it for a vote of no confidence in, in the then chair of the board. The second order of business was a vote of no confidence and then it, it, it went through all of the toxic trustees one by one and it was going to be a vote of confidence to remove them one by one. Um, and that, that actually went out it was just before Christmas um, 2015 
So it had been going on during 2014, 2015, the two, first two years Ryan was on the board. Um, and it was actually the Monday of Christmas week that this meeting took place. Eight o'clock on the Monday morning, Christmas week. So Ryan and the other trustee that had been working with were on one side of the room. The lawyer was at the top of the table. Myself and one of my deputies were on another side of the table. And the people who were going to be voted off were effectively outside because they weren't allowed to come into the room because it was going to be a vote of no confidence. They had to come in one at a time. Midnight the night before, so midnight Sunday night, the chair, the then chair, submitted a resignation letter. So that was done and dusted. And that was the critical tipping point because the strategy was that we felt that she wouldn't be able to handle it and would resign. And that changed the numbers. And it meant that everything else then would automatically have a majority. So the, the strategy that had been developed included the tactics of creating a more numbers in favor of removing these yeah, people yeah. Than, than, than against. But that also meant that because she, she had submitted a resignation and the meeting had to start, that when the lawyer started the meeting, she said to Ryan, well, you've called this meeting, so you're chairing it. So that was, that was, Ryan didn't know that was going, I knew, but I didn't tell him because I thought if I told him, I knew he wouldn't turn up if I told him, so I didn't tell him. Um, That's a big deal, isn't it? So, but she, she, the lawyer was chairing it really, but he was on yeah, paper yeah. as the chair and he had to actually say the things out loud. So he had to say the meeting started and then he had to say the first order of business was a vote of no confidence in, in the chair, but the chair has resigned, so that's no longer valid. And then he had to say the next order of business is a vote of no confidence in, and he had to say that person's name, and he had to call them into the room. That person is the one that I've just talked about that was bullying me and that screamed at me in a meeting. He came into the, the, the room, and when he saw me and my deputy, and it was the deputy who challenged him, he started kicking off, and he started screaming at all of us, you fucking cannot be in this room, all this kind of stuff. So the lawyer just sat there, let him scream and shout and scream and shout, and then she pointed out exactly why legally we were in the room, and he still said, I challenge it and all the rest of it. And she said, okay, let's call a vote. Those in favor of the chief executive and, the, and my deputy being in the room, say aye. And obviously Ryan and everyone else, they said aye. Um, so he had no no choice but to accept that they'd done it legally, done a vote. We were legally, we were entitled to be in the room anyway, and the lawyer knew that, which is why we were there. But he didn't want us in the room because he knew there was going to be a vote of no confidence in him. He then tried to argue about why he should be able to stay, even though he knew there was going to be more people voting against him. And I got to hear all of his sad excuses and then once he'd finished, the lawyer said to him, anything else? And at that point, he didn't have anything else. He said, can I bring my representative in? And the lawyer said, under paragraph whatever of legislation, whatever, you don't have the right to no. be representative. No. <laughs> um, so that was that done and dusted. And, and then she said, given that you said everything you've got to say, I'm now going to ask the chair. So that was back to Ryan. Um, I'm now going to ask the chair to call the vote of no confidence, which Ryan then did. And 
the vote of no confidence was to I was against this guy and he then had to be removed from the building so I had the satisfaction of watching him being physically escorted off the premises but we went we went through that process systematically and Ryan had to read out the names of each person until it was done um, and at the end of that meeting the lawyer said to Ryan um, by default you're now chair of Burtonshaw <laughs> <laughs> um, the chief executive will have to and he, Ryan's going what? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> um, this was Monday and Christmas week and it couldn't have been a, a, like watching these people being removed these oh, toxic people it was so fabulous but the, the lawyer said to, to Ryan the chief executive for me we'll have to instigate a process now to either appoint a, a new permanent chair or to ratify the decision that you're chair um, and we had a meeting in, I think it was the first week of January. And that was when Ryan was formally appointed as the chair and he's been the chair ever since. And we were able to then build the board back up. So all the toxic people were removed. We built it back up with a really positive board, a really supportive board, a board that wants Burton Shaw to thrive. And it's about to, people. It's about people. It's about the people we support. It's yeah. about the people we employ. It's about the people we've we don't yet support but we will support in the future yeah. so about it growing and expanding um so ryan's been on the board for five six years but been chair since december when he, when 2015 when he told me i was just like there's no way somebody would accept you to be on a board when ryan Not is the head he's still well, the no, chair he still is ryan he still brings his personality <laughs> but he brings his realness yeah, yeah. and you know, he he chairs the meeting. He starts it. He mm. tells people to shut up. If and you know, other people might sort of like tap something or say, "Can we come to order or whatever." Ryan just goes, "Right, shut up," <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to start the meeting. Ever um, since I've met him, mate, and I know it's going to sound really weird, but our anniversary is on the twenty second of this month. That's when I first met him. He's he's always thought so highly of you and always always said to me look Tim you need to meet David um, and from this podcast mate I totally understand why now because I feel that if you cut me in half we'd be the exact same makeup as you and That's Ryan so powerful. and I, I think it's important that together we, we send this message out to people mate honestly I can't tell you how proud and privileged I am to tell your story on this Thank I think you. everything you've been through mate I think it's sick I love the dark times, you know. I just so resonate with people with darkness. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just, well, I, there's nothing wrong with people being silver spoon fed and what's it, but I just can't connect with them. I can't, I, you don't understand, they don't yeah, understand. Yeah. I feel, and I'm not being derogatory to people, but I feel people are soft in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. And I like people who have been through hardships and have to graft through life to get where they are. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it, honestly, mate, I can't tell how privileged I am to tell your story on here, mate. No, Honestly, I, it's been a, it's been a, an absolute pleasure listening to it. I mean, I, um, I appreciate the opportunity. If there's anything that I can do to help your business, th to be honest, mate, you don't need anybody apart from yourself after this. But like, you know, if 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 there's anybody out there struggling with a small business or they want to get in touch with it, how can they get in touch with you? Well, they can get in touch with me either through Burton Shaw or through Breakthrough Success. Burton Shaw's dead easy to find yeah. on the on the socials um, or yeah. um, on the website. My own social media is it's just my name, so David Reed, then 0203. Or they can email me at um, Breakthrough Success, so it's uh, david at breakthrough-success.co.uk. Amazing, mate. 
again thank you so much you're welcome thank you very much for the opportunity it's been lovely to talk to you and share it goodbye everybody